You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino. And as always, I am joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, how you doing? It's a late night episode, our first late night episode. So how's it going? Yeah, this is late night with Chris Tourette's Trevino. Uh, I think he's going late night because he can drop a few F-bombs and uh, maybe the censors won't cancel us. I don't know, Chris. Is that your uh, your your ultimate plan here to uh, do a little late night, uh, uh, do a little uh, more, uh, you know, off the cuff uh, blue humor? Absolutely not, Gerard. This is a good, clean family podcast, and I contend that I did not say what you said i said at the end of the podcast i have to go back and listen to it but i contend but this is a late night podcast yes so i'm not really sure what's going to come up come of it i don't know i got that little bit of a loopy end of the day uh mentality going on but this is our first late night podcast so it is a historical podcast but it's also a historical podcast for a bigger reason gerard and to the listeners because this is our first sponsored podcast i am so excited hold on this is a moment i've been waiting for my entire life to have a sponsor of my own (laughs) i am holding back tears right now i'm so excited to to be working with a sponsor for composite two-star recruits we haven't been on the air that long gerard this is like our 22nd episode we already have a sponsor so I just want to thank the listeners for all the support and, uh, you know, downloads that they give to to, to make us a, a very uh, successful and popular podcast. We thank you. But let's get into our sponsorship because now, Gerard, you know, it's no secret that you and I are a couple of one star hosts. That's the whole theme of this this show. That's the whole bit. But outside of this podcast, you can't rely on one star anything in the real world. Yeah, and that's especially true in the L.A. real estate market. Absolutely. And that's why you need a five-star. You need a certified five-star realtor like Meredith Schlosser. Introduced to our podcast by longtime listener and fan Joan Levis. Shout out to Joan. Meredith Schlosser is proud to be the latest Peristyle podcast sponsor and the first official sponsor of Composite Two-Star Recruits. That's awesome. You know, as one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles, with over 600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews, Meredith has not only represented Joan, but also Justin Silverstein, head coach of USC Women's Golf, and Jeannie Buss, president of the Los Angeles Lakers. But, you know, don't be intimidated when you hear NBA royalty like Jeannie Buss. Meredith works with a wide range of clients, from recent college graduates, first-time buyers, first-time sellers, and more. Meredith is backed by a full-service team that allows her to service this wide range of clientele for rentals, sales, and purchases. She also has extensive experience with first-time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5%, top 1.5%, Gerard, of agents in the nation. 
You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That's S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can follow her on Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Meredith spelled M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H. Again, so excited to have Meredith and her team be the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits. Go to her website, follow her on Instagram. You know, again, she works with a wide range of people, you know, not just the the big big shot callers like Jeannie Buss, but, you know, recent college grads, first-time home buyers, all that kind of stuff. So make sure you check her out. And thank you so much for being a sponsor for us, Meredith. Gerard, I almost feel like we should just end the show right here. You know, I don't think we're going to get any better than that. You know, I've it's been we my dream. I, done. I got, <laughs> we're done. We're off the air. It's over. So it's only it's only down here from here. You know, that's that's the peak of the show. I, I just have to I just have to warn everybody. But, you know, if you're going to keep listening. All right. We have the cold open. And Gerard, it uh, was a special kind of week last week. Well, a little bit, but football was back. You know, we got out to some games, so we're going to open up with a little bit of Friday Night Lights talk. You were at a game. I was at a game. Jarrett was at a game. Uh, So, you know, the team was out and about on Friday nights, you know, getting that week zero coverage going. Uh, I was at Sarah Orange Lutheran uh, out there at uh, Orange Coast College. Orange Coast? Golden Coast? No, Orange Coast. And you were out there in the, the IE for Rancho Cucamonga versus Servite. We both got some trinity league action uh so i I guess i want to start with you how how was your game because well i know how your game went but because servite you know who's playing in a cif championship last year got dog walked by rancho yeah not the same servite team as last year you know they're rebuilding they don't have the horses that they did last year they had a a special team last year and uh, this year Definitely a very conservative approach, you know, a physical football team, but just didn't have the skill talent on the outside or the backfield to be able to run with Ranch Cucamonga. Ranch Cucamonga has got a good team. You know, they've got a very good, solid team around them. Obviously, they're led by Christian Pierce, the safety that's committed to USC. And uh, he had a really good game, Uh, not a spectacular game in terms of pass breakups, or interception, Servite really didn't put the ball in the air a whole lot. They really tried to keep it conservative, but he played towards the line of scrimmage most of the night and was very much vocal. I think the intangibles I really also like about Christian Pierce. You know, he's big, he's long, he's 6'2", uh, has a good burst near the ball. You can see a little bit of that quick twitchiness, and you can see that physicality when he hits and he hits with that initial contact. There's some violence there. Uh, but also, I think just his leadership on the field and watching him direct traffic, middle of the field, making sure his guys are lined up right. He's always right there near the tackle, and he's clapping his guys up. He's he's instructing his guys. He's very vocal. And um, for a guy that, you know, is, is a really good leader for a really good team, again, it's one of those things where people ask me, is he, is he underrated? Is he underrated? He's definitely underrated. It's just a matter of him staying healthy and being able to shine in some of these games where people are able to see him in person, some of the national analysts. I know Greg Biggins wants to get out and watch him play in person. Greg's a big fan of him, though. Um, so it's one of those things where I think the confidence of being able to pound the table for Christian Pierce has to come from seeing him in person. And I'm sure Ranch Cucamonga is going to play in enough big games 
this season. They're going to be a good enough team where they'll be there in the playoffs, and I'm sure more people are going to be able to see them in person. They've got a few guys on that team that are pretty good players, but Christian Pierce certainly is the guy that the spotlight was on for us watching him and we did some ISO film, got a bunch of film of him playing, probably link it up with some film from him this coming week um, just to kind of, you know, see if we can get just a, a, a greater breadth of his performance and sort of how he's improved over the offseason. But it was a, a real good win for Ranch Kumungo, 27 to 7. Uh, Servite uh, scored at the very end of the game. It was kind of one of those things where they tried to preserve the shutout, but the punter actually took a knee accidentally he got a low snap and he took a knee before he punted and that gave Servite the ball at like the 20 yard line 25 yard line and they were able to push it in with just uh I think it was like 35 seconds or something left in the game so uh, they weren't able to preserve the shutout but um certainly Servite's gonna struggle a bit in the Trinity League with those behemoth teams that are in the Tr- Trinity League but I think uh, Ranch Cookmung is also a very good team it was only 27 I thought it was much more no, only 27 to that's 7. That's why I said that's why I said dog wire. I thought it was a much bigger beatdown. Well, I tell you, it did, the score didn't indicate how much Ranch Cucamonga dominated Servite. I mean, they really okay. dominated them pretty well. There there wasn't really much light for for Servite after it was like 14 to nothing. You could almost feel it. I think I tweeted after his 21 to nothing. I don't think Servite really has the horses to be able to come back in a game like this. Uh, so it was one of those things where the score wasn't necessarily indicative of how much Ranch Cookmunk actually dominated Servite last week. Is there any truth to the rumor that Servite might be regulated after this this loss? I'm not even following. I don't know. The, I was making like a, a regulated, like a regulation, like you know, in soccer, when they get booted down to a lower level. Okay, I, I I understand that reference, but what does that have to do? You think? I mean, they just were in the CIF championship last year. They're not kind yeah, of. I I know, I know. It was, a joke. That it was a joke. It was a bit. It was a bit, Gerard. We're already off to a terrible start. It was a bad bit. Night. Yes, the the Premier League that is the Trinity League. Servite is still a, a very good team. Yes, this is not going to be their year. But I haven't seen Olu. You saw Olu against Servite. You know, what's your opinion of Olu? I mean, Servite could still be competitive, but I think it's going to be towards the bottom of the league this year. I assume you meant Olu versus Sarah, not Servite. Correct. Olu versus, well, Olu versus Servite will be down the road, but you saw Olu versus Sarah High School. I did. I did. And I'm going to be honest, I wasn't really, I know this was like a Sarah versus Trinity League school, but I couldn't really even tell that Orange Lutheran was a Trinity League school. Uh, there's going to be like some Olu alumni that's just going to give me a bunch of hate mail after this. But you know, like well when deserved. you go, well when deserved. you 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 know that what'd you say? Yeah, well deserved hate mail. Uh, I you know you go to like a Trinity. You hear about the Trinity League. You know, it's like the number one league in America. As 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 a lot of people like to point out, that's a low uh, a statement. Love uh, people love to say, and. I just didn't feel like I was looking at a Trinity League school. I didn't look over there and be like, oh, that's a guy. Oh, that's a guy I need to ask about. Or I didn't feel anything like that looking over at Orange Olu's sideline or, you know, just watching them play. This was a real, like, kind of slugfest. It was a one-point win for for Orange Lutheran. I'll give them credit. They really scrapped back in this one. It was a 27-26 to win for them. Just a brutal opening opening loss for for Sarah those Cavaliers because they did 
you know, enough to like feel like, oh, they're they're the better team in this. They're they they're being more physical, they're making more plays, but at the end of the day, they just made more mistakes. And I guess any coach would say they did not deserve to win looking at that. But for most of the second half, Sarah was the better team. And, you know, I look at Sarah's sideline and there's a lot of talent over there. You know, we know Sarah's never had a problem really with talent. Uh, seemed like the the pipeline dried up a little bit for a little bit there. But it's looking really good over there. You have Jason Mitchell, you know, 2024 four-star uh, Dakota Fields, four-star cornerback, USC is is high on. Obviously, Roderick Pleasant, national cornerback cor- uh, prospect in the 2023 class. Uh, there's a a three-star running back that I got to get introduced to that I saw play in Cecile Rainey that I'm going to talk about a little bit there who I was really impressed with. But the problem for both of these teams are is that they could not move the ball through their quarterbacks. Both teams could not throw the ball down the field. Both teams could not pick up a long third down. And that was kind of the the story of the first half for these guys. And again, I was isoing, you know, Roderick Pleasant. He did not get a lot of targets on him. And, you know, Gerard, we film a lot of games. And I just want to tell you, I had a great start to my season with first play, pick six, Roderick Pleasant to the house, first play of his senior year. And after that, they did not really go his way a lot. I believe he was thrown on Four times all night, and they did not get a single pass off, one of those being a pass breakup as well, including his pick six. So for the most part, Roderick Pleasant's touchdown to start this game looked like it was going to be the only touchdown in this game. I believe it was like seven to three at half or something like that. And then Sarah kind of found a groove where they were running the ball really, really well with Sincere, got up about two touchdown lead, and then mistakes just started coming. You know, they had a fumble on a kickoff return right after – uh, Olu got into the end zone, gave him the ball right back and tied that thing up. And then they missed a very big uh, extra point. That kind of was the difference here in a one-point loss. And a couple of penalties down the line. I did not agree with both of those penalties, those uh, pass interference calls for from the Zebras. But that's the way it goes. And, you know, they got them to about fourth fourth and goal with the game on the line with about 30 seconds left. And guy, uh, one of the players made a... Uh, a misplay. I don't think he 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 had his responsibility down, and they kind of slipped in for that touchdown, kind of easy there at the end. So kind of a brutal loss for Sarah, and a start to Roderick Pleasant's senior year. Yeah, that's a conundrum for Sarah because they struggled with what they were going to do at the quarterback position, even in seven on seven. You know, you've got Jason Mitchell there, and Jason's uh, ceiling is certainly higher at receiver and even defensive back. And that's kind of story where you want to see him. But then he's one of the best athletes on the team. Yeah. And so you can get away with some things having your best athlete get quarterback because, you know, you can hike that ball to him every time he's going to make a play. So it's one of those things that it's tough. You would like to see him be able to exploit some matchups with his height at receiver more. But they've got to figure it out. They've got to have somebody that they have confidence in. Um, that they don't become too one-dimensional of a football team that they can put the ball in the air because you can put Jason Mitchell at quarter uh, at wide receiver and you can have you know even Roderick Pleasant will be out there at receiver from time to time but if you have no one to get them the ball then they're just wasting reps out there so at least having a Jason Mitchell at quarterback you know he can get the ball and he can do something with it um, but the consistency there through the air obviously I think Olu probably figured it out a little bit 
other teams are going to take that moving forward. And so it's something that uh, Sarah's got to kind of figure out moving forward. Yeah, it was that two QB system where they were using Mitchell as kind of the runner. And he would throw on occasion, but it wasn't always like a clean connection or it ended up being short. And like you said, really good athlete, but just an athlete who's playing out of position at at quarterback. And he had a really nice touchdown run on a run where he kind of, you know, broke off left, juke through the line. They had a good hole for him, and he he kind of somersaulted over a defender into the end zone. I got it. You're checking on my Twitter. But really good athlete. You know, he's playing a lot of safety, almost kind of like a linebacker at times. So, you know, legit six foot three, kind of pushing six foot four. Kind of, sp- I spoke with him after the game, and you know, we were kind of talking about his recruitment and how you know he came, he went to that pool party at the end, that barbecue, and really enjoyed it. You know, his birthday was a couple days before that, so the staff tried to you know give him a little bit of a late birthday celebration. So he's still feeling the love over there at USC. I asked him about you know going to games this this year, and he he wasn't sure if he's going to make it to the or it's not really on his radar yet if he's going to be able to go to the Rice game. I wouldn't be surprised if he was there, obviously. And but he did kind of mention that he was planning on going to the Utah game out of state, so that's an interesting one. So I've actually had a couple guys tell me that they want to go to that that Utah out of state game. Um, so you know USC still plugging along with him. Uh, USC that crystal ball is still in for the, the for Mitchell. He's, I think that's the only one he holds uh, right now. And and just Roderick, just like evaluating him and looking at him, he's just so smooth. Um, out there and obviously he didn't get a lot of kind of work thrown at him only four four targets really all day but didn't really get to see him uh bust the big one too with the uh with the punt returns there obviously they weren't kicking towards him and kickoff as much as he wanted to didn't really get really any punt returns as well the only really one he got was kind of scary because uh olu defender kind of like literally ripped his helmet off he kind of like one of those scary ones where they grab the face mask and it kind of goes the other way the helmet came off it was, it was a scary moment but he was okay stayed in the game he seemed like he was not 100 percent healthy because i would see him over at the uh the training table a lot um but yeah just a really smooth athlete and i wish i got to see him more on offense they didn't they weren't able to really get him the ball at all on offense that you know they threw him out there at the very end when they were trying to the last 30 seconds trying to move move the ball down the field but obviously Sarah cannot really complete a deep pass, so was kind of uh, all for not there. And they do have a young sophomore quarterback who does have some potential. He's just, like, not there yet. You know, he's just not, you know, reading and reacting and processing. You need a, a varsity quarterback to to process. So, obviously, we'll, we'll have to see, you know, in six weeks it could be a different story. But, yeah, they don't, they don't have a quarterback at all. Yeah, it's tough to uh, have a quarterback that has a big enough arm to throw the ball. Yeah over uh, Roger Pleasant. I mean, <laughs> you can't really out throw a guy that's running 10-1. And even with uh, Mitchell and Dakota Fields is another guy that they've got on that team that I know USC made a big push with during that pool party. I think Dakota Fields yeah. really was feeling Oregon a lot more than USC over the spring. And the camp, I think, was partly something that kind of warmed him up to the coaching staff. He got to hang out a little bit more with Dante Williams and and just get a feel for the coaching staff more. And you could see that he really sort of was warming up to the, D, uh, the, the, the feeling of being on campus at USC more than he had previously. And with Jason Mitchell, I think it's going to be interesting to see what side of the ball USC ultimately recruits him at. Because I think he would like to play receiver more. 
that's mm-hmm. me reading between the lines, talking to him. The vibe is he kind of sees himself more as an offensive player, but USC is recruiting him more as a defensive player. At least right now, Dante Williams has been his lead recruiter, and they've talked to him more about playing defense. And I think for him, in his own mind, he'd like to play offense at USC. So yeah, I kind of asked him about that. Cause I was like, oh, where he's like, he's, he said they're just looking at him as an athlete. So I, I, another question you could do is follow up like, oh, who's your, you know, who's your best relationship, which kind of, you know, tells you the lead recruiter, whether it's Dante. And he kind of said, I couldn't really answer that because I feel like I'm close with all of them. So I didn't really get much from there, but I did get the impression that offense is kind of where he wants to to be. And he said, you know, a lot of schools have offered him at different stuff. And he's not really sure where he's going to play at the next level. He said that's something he's going to really focus on next season for his senior year. And right now he's just kind of, you know, playing both at quarterback um, and safety and kind of kind of that deal. And next year he'll kind of really focus it down as, as to what he wants to play at the next level. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I even joked with him because he said, I feel like I can play every position except for you know, linemen. And I kind of joked with him, well, look, you, you're, you're pretty big. You could be kind of an edge guy as well. And he said, and he kind of looked at, I don't know if he was joking or not, but he looked at me like dead in my eyes. He was like, that's actually my dream. He's like, that's my dream. <laughs> I, and I was like, I was like, uh, okay. He's like, yeah, I just like, and he kind of mentioned like he has like trouble, like putting on weight, enough weight to kind of be an edge rusher. So I don't know, maybe next year he, he'll be an edge rusher. I'm not sure, but he did seem kind of sincere and wanting to be kind of an edge guy, Gerard. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, he played, uh, like you said, a little more near the line of scrimmage um, this year. So that's something to look at, you know, as he develops physically. And, you know, certainly his dad, you know, played receiver uh, in college. So I, I don't know that uh, if, he's, if he's got the, uh, the, the bloodlines to put on as much weight as he would need to ultimately play that position in college. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting side note. And I just want to give a – because before we move on to Los Alamitos, because I forgot to mention them, but we didn't have anyone at that game. But Malachi Nelson had a big debut to a season. But I just want to say a quick shout-out to Sincere Rainey, the running back, who I'd never really been familiar with. But I was thoroughly impressed with him in that game. Ran for two touchdowns, was really critical for them in the second half. About five – he's listed at five foot eleven, but I would venture to say he's – Barely pushing five foot ten, but a big boy, like two hundred and maybe two hundred fifteen, twenty pounds. He's, you know, think of like Roderick Robinson. He's kind of a big back like that. Not as like muscle and defined, but he's got some big legs and he is a load. He is a tank out there, but he's got some wheels too. I posted a video of him kind of breaking through for like a 40 yard run. So he was running hard all night, and he was kind of—I would say—he was their MVP with those two touchdown runs, and kind of the reason why they were able to take a lead there in the third quarter. He is a three-star prospect on 24/7 Sports rankings and 24/7 Sports composite. Got a couple offers: Arizona State, Georgia, San Jose State, and Utah. I don't know, maybe a guy that you know, maybe uh, Kyle McDonald, running backs coach, kind of takes a look at when he starts looking at his board for 2024. Kind of a big power back. Uh, not the tallest guy, but solidly built at, you know, 220 pounds, 215 pounds. So I talked with him a little bit after, just want to introduce myself. But I came away impressed with uh, Mr. Sincere Rainey. And we were talking about great names uh, last last podcast, Gerard. And Sincere Rainey, kind of a good one. 
Yes, very good. Uh, I mean, the, the last name is uh, a name that we've heard plenty of times before, but Sincere, uh, a, a very good name. And uh, we've seen him a little bit at camps, but, you know, a running back like that always shines a lot more when you put the pads on. You know, and that's one of the things that, you know, with camps, we always kind of put that in our back pocket. When you're looking at certain positions, you're just not going to see the full resume. You know, when you're talking about linebackers, you're talking about running backs, there's a certain amount of physicality that comes with those positions. You are never going to see that in seven on seven. So that's why we wait for the game film. And the other game, as I just mentioned, Los Alamitos went all the way up to Bakersfield. Gerard, you're going to have to help me out on the name of this team. Garces? Yeah, they played Garces up in Bakersfield. I got it. I nailed it. Yes. Okay, well, they came. They went up to Garces and they smacked Garces. Uh, this one was pretty much done at halftime. Malachi Nelson... Five-star QB commit, just shredded up that defense, went 14 for 15, 345 yards with five touchdown passes. I believe he scored five touchdown passes on the first five drives of the game. I think uh, Losau obviously had their backups in by the, by, the, by the second half. I think they scored one more time, uh, and before they, won, they wrapped that one up because it was mercy rule, kind of that running clock, but... More interesting enough, it was sort of the the recruiting side of that, Gerard, in terms of Malachi still not doing interviews. Still not talking to the media. He was uh, flexing his USC gear as he had in the scrimmage. And, um, you know, we put a little entry into the war room talking a little bit about Malachi Nelson and uh, some of the talk. Uh, a week ago, uh, mainly coming from Texas A&M, that you know perhaps he was closer to decommitting and and wavering more. Um, it's uh, one of those things where you know you get accused of stirring the pot. And listen, I I totally understand it, and I totally apologize if that's how it's presented because you know we're the last to really do that. There are some sites that make a living. You know, it's a business model to uh, create clickbait titles and. It's either that or every kid is going to their school and, uh, you know, every crystal ball is for their school until it's not. And then you have a big meltdown and people forget about it within a month and then they're back to picking uh, every kid going to their school. So it's one of those things that we try to be very cautious. Uh, We don't need to create more drama on the peristyle than there already is. Uh, Don't like babysitting the message boards because of something that's in the war room, and we've been conditioned almost as writers to just not have anything negative, but that's not doing our job. We have to be objective, and when you hear things from good sources, you have to be able to at least acknowledge them to some extent. And obviously, Malachi Nelson took that unofficial visit to Texas A&M, took it at a precarious time uh, during the year when everything seemed like it was shutting down. And so it's opened up this Pandora's box, if you will, to speculation as to whether he's going to stay committed to USC. And, um, you know, I think on the good side and what we had talked about in the war room, which kind of gets overlooked a little bit in everybody's panic, is that uh, according to the committee class, they're pretty confident he's still going to be at USC. He's going to sign with USC. Uh, Talked a little bit to Christian Pierce about that. Uh, Just recently, they put together a group chat, which I was surprised to hear it was a recent thing. I, I thought this was something that was done back in May or even June, but he said just recently they kind of got a group chat together and I asked him, I said, well, you know, Malachi going to Texas A&M had to be a topic that popped up in the group chat. He said, yeah, you know, 
Malachi let us all know uh, way before he went to Texas A&M what his plans were going to be, where he was going, when he was going, and that really made everybody feel a little more confident about mm-hmm. ultimately where he wanted to be. So um, that's, you know, good news for Trojan fans. And like I said, you know, we put that also in the war room, but, you know, everybody kind of wants to fixate on uh, the potential negatives that might happen. And, you know, it is what it is. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look uh, as the season progresses, if he takes more visits, if there's something that, you know, happens during the season, USC slips up, they play bad, what have you. Obviously, people are going to immediately look and say, "Okay, you know what's happening with Malachi Nelson's recruitment? Is he going to decommit now?" There's obviously that tie that people want to make with Bryce Young, who was formerly committed to USC, who ended up committing to Alabama and just won a Heisman Trophy. Even C.J. Stroud's name comes up because he left the state to go play at Ohio State. wasn't really recruited that hard, however, by USC. And I think in both of those situations, you've got some main differences. And first and foremost, with Bryce Young. You had a lot of skepticism as to whether Clay Helton was going to be retained. And when USC lost that game to BYU that year, it looked like Clay Helton was going to be fired. At least to, I think, the casual USC football fan, most people were calling for him to be fired. And obviously, in the angle of negative recruiting, schools are going to say, oh, yeah, he's done. He's fired. And that really more than anything. People talked a little bit about the offensive line and how Alabama really used the lack of offensive line recruiting to undermine USC's uh, recruitment and his commitment to USC. And that played a part. But what allowed Alabama to really get their foot in the door was the thought that Clay Helton was going to be fired. And, you know, later in that process, uh, even though USC was not playing well, and really shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, They got Bryce Young back on campus for like eight hours one day, and he was playing basketball with Graham Harrell and the rest of the coaching staff, and they thought they were going to get him to flip back from Alabama. So USC even then, even in a a really bad year where I think they went 7-6 and that year and everybody calling for Clay Helton to be fired, they still were able to get uh, one last chance, one last swing, at Bryce Young. So I think now we fast forward to USC at this point in time with Lincoln Riley, the head coach, certainly a lot more stability with USC, a lot more optimism for the future. We'll see what USC does on the field this year, but I think it's a very different set of circumstances when you're looking at Malachi Nelson's recruitment and certain NII creates a variable there. That's a bit of a wild card. We're not really sure how that's going to play out. And that is a major factor. I've always said, you know, you kind of have to be naive to think that that's not going to play a factor in this recruitment. It will. But at the end of the day, I think the circumstances with USC and sort of the feeling around the football program, the environment around the football program, very different than it was with Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud. Absolutely. And Nelson and those uh, Griffins, they got a big road game coming up. They're going all the way to Florida to play American Heritage to face off against, you know, Nelson's buddy, you know, former USC target Brandon Innes, Ohio State commit and He's coming off a monster game himself. I think he had something like over 200 all-purpose yards in their season-opening win. So this is going to be a real test for them going all the way out there to Florida. Uh, that should be a good game, uh, Gerard. And I, I hope it's on TV somewhere. I think it's going to be on ESPN. That will be that makes sense. Game. That yeah. makes sense. I, I think uh, it, this one is going to be it's going to be tough for Los Al. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're going to have T.A. Cunningham the transfer from Georgia, the five-star defensive lineman, 
I tend to think they might not have him. He sat out against Garces. Now, Garces was completely overmatched. They didn't need him. They knew they weren't going to need him. They also didn't have Damian Henderson, uh, the other transfer from Long Beach Jordan. So they had a couple of those transfers out. And I don't know if they're under hardship or what have you. You would think with T.A. Cunningham coming across country, he wouldn't have to sit out the five games that you normally see with transfers under CIF. But again, I have not gotten a clear answer yet from anybody uh, from Los Al whether he's going to play for sure or not. But nevertheless, it's a very difficult game going all the way out there to Florida, playing against one of the most talented teams uh, in Florida. I don't know from top to bottom what American Heritage has this year, but that's a team that can go toe-to-toe with IMG and some of the best teams in Florida. So that's tough. I think, you know, the matchup that's going to be fun to watch, regardless of what happens with the score, is going to be Makai Lemon going against perhaps Brandon Enos. I don't know if that's going to be a one-on-one sort of shadow matchup, but so many people continue to tell me (laughs) Makai Lemon should play corner in college. A lot of people feel like that is actually his best position. They also got Ethan O'Connor there who plays defensive back. He tends to play more safety for LaSalle, but I think people are starting to come around having seen him play in some seven-on-seven, and I think they'll keep an eye on him more this year. They're going to realize he's a guy that maybe USC should be on a lot harder because he is a very good player with his best football ahead of him. And that game will be on ESPN2, it looks like. And I think it's like a 4 p.m. start for out here on the West Coast. We probably won't be able to see that because we'll be uh, out of some games. We might be able to check out a little bit of it. And we'll talk about where we're going to be heading uh, at the end of our main part of the show. We're going to talk about where we're going. Some other big games on tap. Uh, St. John Bosco in Texas. We'll get into that. But, yeah, great start to the season for Malachi Nelson. We'll see if they can uh, you know, pull off the upset out there in Florida, see what happens there. But, Gerard, we broke a streak on this podcast because there was no commitment, Gerard. Is, is it all for nothing now? There's no The streak is over. What do we do? It was a good streak. It was great to mm-hmm. open with a commitment because, you know, we always like to have a little good news, especially when it's not the postmortem of USC losing a five-star to some other school. Uh, certainly, you know, a five-star offensive lineman to another school. I mean, that's uh, that's blasphemy, but nevertheless, something that uh, we've had to uh, sort of go over uh, multiple weeks. But USC turned it around there, you know, at the end of July, going into August, and we had a good streak going of commitments, and it was close. There was a potential that we, we thought could, we thought we would make it six. Gerard. Maybe, maybe, maybe. There's some things in the works, but. Uh, sounds like we're not going to have a commitment to talk about this week, but maybe in the near future. And you are specifically, we are referring to four-star safety Warren Roberson, who teased a little bit last week, kind of got some news dropping on Monday. Did the classic, uh, anybody a videographer, an editor, I need one of those, you know, DM me kind of one of those things. But ended up Warren Roberson, you know, the the four-star Red Oak, Texas safety, number 21 safety in the 24-7 sports composite, number 264, 24-7 sports uh, composite, sorry, excuse me, number 21 safety in the 24-7 sports rankings, number 264 in the 24-7 sports composite. Gerard, I don't know if it's confused you, but when you look at a player's profile, the 24-7 composite is now on the bottom, and the 24-7 sports ranking is now up top. My whole life, it's composite has been on top, so I I read it wrong all the time now, and and it drives me crazy. But he is a consensus four-star prospect, 
Instead, he released a top five that included USC, SMU, Oklahoma State, Florida, and TCU. You know, we, we think a commitment is going to be coming soon down the pipeline. We know he's he's gone on record saying that he kind of wants to get the commitment over with before his senior year. So he kind of focus on on the season ahead, get that out of the way. USC has all three crystal balls. Most recently, Steve Wilfong put in a fong bong, as the, the hairstyle likes to call it, a unfortunate uh, typo that has now become part of hairstyle lore. He put in a, a crystal ball for a six for a Roberson. So USC looking pretty good to add another Texan to the 2023 class whenever he decides to make that decision. Yeah, potentially. An interesting top five. I thought Missouri might slip in there because they're a school that have been recruiting him pretty hard lately. Uh, he's a guy that, you know, a lot of people thought, why would you release a top five at this point? It's a little late in the year, and that's just, you know, sort of a bit of a, a, a talking point on the early signing period where people feel like it's a little early in the year to have a top five. And it's like, listen, man, come on, give these kids some time to work out uh, what these schools really have to offer them. He's only been on one official visit. That's to USC. Uh, he really got the majority of his scholarship offers on the back end of the May evaluation period. So he's one of those few recruits that really saw a lot of momentum in his recruitment over the summer. It wasn't one of those things where he had all his offers in spring and then had to figure out, okay, who am I going to visit? He literally got a bunch of his visits as he was thinking about if he was going to take any visits during the summer or push them back during the season. He's been a bit torn whether he wants to commit during the summer or he wants to wait to take some visits to some other schools. My read is that he'll probably commit before uh, uh, September and then end up or I should yeah, September's coming up pretty quick. I mean, he, he it's going to be pretty soon here, I, I think. But he may end up still taking some official visits, specifically Florida is one school that's been recruiting him hard. And I know he has some interest in. So he may take a, a visit and then kind of see where he stands as the season goes on and maybe. He ends up taking a visit to Florida uh, or maybe SMU can get him up there. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me, but um, certainly another position that USC is stalking up at and mm-hmm. another, you know, in terms of profile, a player that's a defensive back who can sort of dance between the safety positions and the cornerback positions. He's a lot like Braxton Myers. He's a lot like uh, Malachi Crawford in that regard, a bigger defensive back who, you know, you look at him, he's got the athleticism to potentially play a little bit on the outside, but he's definitely bulked up this year enough to where you look at him and say, that's that's a guy that's a safety, and not only a safety, but a guy you put up, you know, near the line of scrimmage and can be a bit of a enforcer. I mean, he's a good 190, probably 195 pounds at this point. He put on a lot of weight in the last year and is uh, certainly one that I think maybe different than Braxton Myers and Malachi Crawford is that he is sort of the gravitational point for Red Oak. He is the guy. They're going to try to get him the ball every yeah. which way possible. He's not just going to play defense. He's not just going to play cornerback. He's a the guy they're going to move around all over the field, probably even play some wildcat, wildcat quarterback just to get the ball in his hands because he is the best athlete on the team. And so he'll be fun to watch this year. I think he's going to put up some pretty big numbers um, if he can you know, have some help there and, and some people can get him the ball through the air. 
and then he can, you know, come in at, at some various points and maybe be a Wildcat quarterback and run the ball even a little bit. So a uh, really good all-around athlete, four-star across the board now. USC was really kind of one of the first schools that got in on him when you saw that surge where he got a bunch of scholarship offers. So he has a really good relationship with Dante Williams, and he talks to uh, Alex Grinch quite a bit. And I would say, yeah, USC is uh, definitely the team to beat at this point. But there are other schools, like I said, that are starting to just build their relationship with him. So, um, you know, kind of a rare thing for a Texas athlete to be one of those guys where, you know, his recruitment is just taking off at this point in time. A lot of those guys in Texas, you know, you know about them well before the end of their junior year. Um, He's a guy that uh, is really just starting to see recruiting momentum going into his senior year. Yeah, and this obviously you kind of mentioned him. He could have a a monster kind of senior year, just given all that he does for that Red Oak uh, team, not just on defense but offense. You know, he had 688 uh, receiving yards last year with six touchdowns, four picks on defense, and he was a really good uh, uh, returner for them. So if he has a big season. You know, this is a guy. Maybe those uh, Texas schools, those bigger Texas schools, come knocking a little bit. You know, Texas. A&M, Texas Longhorns, uh, even Baylor, you know, who's probably considered the top Texas program at the time uh, in the state, in the Lone Star State. So we always got to mention that, you know, when USC pulls someone out of Texas or or gets a commitment, you got to watch out for those other school, those Texas schools that come sniffing around. We've mentioned that last week with the with USC's running back commits as as potential where those programs come come checking them out if they have big senior years. Well, at least with this group that USC is recruiting from Texas, it's middle of the pack of their class. And it seemed like, you know, USC was sort of in desperation going after guys in Texas that were really just being offered by Texas Tech and SMU and really bottom of the kind of four-star, three-star types, which were because USC just couldn't recruit locally. And most of the guys that they've got from Texas in this class are guys that are good players that had, you know, scholarship offers uh, from multiple teams in that area. Now, some of them weren't recruited high by Texas A&M or Texas, uh, but some of them like, you know, Braylon Shelby were. So that's a good sign. You know, you do want to see Oklahoma, Texas, Texas A&M, LSU, some of those schools uh, involved for these type of players you're not just going in there and trying to get under the radar guys from east texas all the time so this is a definitely a much better group of texans it's a it's a little more first choice that usc is going in after and certainly you know i think warren roberson is is one of those guys that's still a bit underrated and like you said i think that the texas schools could definitely, you know, take a second look at him as they see him this year, not just on the defensive side of the ball, but the things he's probably going to be able to do on offense, uh, those type of ball skills, you know, that translates really well to playing defensive back. And when you've got that versatility where you're six foot, you know, 190, 195 pounds, you can play all over the field. And defenses right now are that hybrid, and mostly all of them are using some type of nickel personnel as a base package. They're all using three safeties or they're using three cornerbacks. I think it just really depends on the matchup, but most of them are using those type of defenses and those type of defenses USC has used over the past few years, going back to Clancy Pendergast uh, when he was uh, coaching under Clay Helton. So this is a player that really can kind of fit in, whether it be a nickel safety or maybe a boundary corner, free safety. I think, you know, when you look at Braxton Myers and you look at Malachi Crawford and you look at uh, Warren Roberson, you're looking at a traditional free safety. If you're going back to the old 4-3 days 
of uh, the NFL offenses under Pete Carroll. He's a free safety. Uh, but nowadays, you're going to be able to move those guys a little bit more, and he's a guy that could probably play, you know, one of maybe three positions. There you go. Transitioning out of the defensive back areas, ready to talk a little D-line uh, recruiting, Gerard? Yes, D-line recruiting is evolving, Chris Trevino. It's evolving as uh, we talk right now. It seems like uh, we've seen some new scholarship offers go out to some defensive linemen, and it's uh, certainly a position where USC is positioning themselves to maybe make sure that they're not uh, out in the wind a little bit uh, on the defensive front. Absolutely. And I don't do this all the time, but sometimes we get questions for our listener question portion, and we got a lot of questions uh, to end this podcast, Gerard. So don't think we're getting out of here without getting a couple in. But when I have a question that I get that I know we're going to be talking about on the show, I kind of put it in the middle of a show because I think it, it, it's, it's, it's a nice tone setter. So I have three of those for this week's show. So I think I just want to get to the first one right now, and it kind of talks about D-line, and I knew we were going to talk about defensive line recruiting. So I think that's a good tone setter. So let's just kind of get into it. This comes from Keith W. Fellas, a couple of questions regarding the most recent D-line offers for the 2023 class. First, isn't it a bit late in the cycle to offer? Historically, what is the success rate for offering this late? And second, what do you think promoted these offers, hedging against potentially losing Mateo? And I believe he's referring to, obviously, Caleb Bryan as a recent uh, defensive line, defensive end offer. And then the new one, three-star Arlington, Virginia, uh, edge rusher, uh, Elijah Hughes, uh, six foot two and a half, six foot three, 265 pounds, uh, three-star, has you know a smattering of uh, offers that we'll get into. But Gerard, is this, is this considered late? Do you think this is late? It's not necessarily late, although I would say to follow up on historically, what is the success rate of offering scholarships this late really depends on what your record is. (laughs) If you're a team like USC under Clay Helton, the success rate is very low because you're probably not going to have a great season and you're just too late to be able to move the needle with some of these players. And we would see a lot of those random offers come out really late and we're like, oh, that's not going to happen. And it was usually to some kids in Texas. And you go, okay, you know, that's a little bit of a pivot there. And USC not necessarily being proactive on their evaluations and going after guys that, uh, you know, other schools are going after, but basically going to plan B or C at that point and offering. And even at that point, sometimes it seemed like they were on the outside looking in because, uh, again, there are other schools that were already uh, sort of had their foot in the door and built a relationship with those players. Um, With some of these guys, it's clear that while they have some relationships built, it's with schools that are not necessarily heavy hitters in recruiting. So if USC is able to have a good year and they're able to move the needle a bit with how they play during the season on the field, then you're going to be right in the thick of things immediately. You talk about Elijah Hughes, you know, it's like Virginia tag. There's a few schools in the ACC that are after him, but no like big time schools that if USC can win 10 games, that are necessarily going to completely overshadow their recruitment. Now, the question of whether this is USC sort of hedging its bets with uh, with Mateo Ungalale, I think to some degree it is. I think there's a little bit of that. I, I think that certainly 
you look at the board and and what it looks like. You had Edric Hill commit to Alabama. Now I think Edric Hill is a different type of player. I think he's more of a straight up defensive tackle that maybe he ends up being a nose. Maybe he stays as a three technique, but he falls in line more with Marquise Deal, the defensive tackle out of Garland which now he is being rated by 24-7 sports as a defensive tackle. In fact, he's one of the top defensive tackles um, at that position right now at defensive line. So, you know, they moved him over from being ranked as an interior offensive lineman to now being a defensive tackle. And interestingly enough that he is still ranked fairly high uh, as such. So that's um, an interesting move to see that now he's being acknowledged as a defensive lineman, and that's where USC is recruiting him. They're not recruiting him as an interior offensive lineman. Jacksonville, Florida, four-star defensive tackle, and Marquise Deal is ranked ahead of him. Jordan Hall is another player that USC has messed around with. They tried to get him on an official visit uh, for the first week of June. That was canceled. Not really sure if they're still really going after him. They're still pushing with him. It seems like he's probably going to stay in state, so that might be another guy that's really kind of not on the board so much anymore. But you have, you know, Terrence Green's another guy we could talk about. The uh, Cypress, Texas, three-star, four-star defensive lineman. I think it depends on what publication you're looking at. But that's a guy that, uh, you know, had his visit canceled by USC. But now you're looking at his body type, 6'5", 265 pounds, sort of a strong side defensive end who will end up playing inside as a three technique. You know, Caleb Bryant, Elijah Hughes, you know, even Cameron Bryant, who is from Sarah Canyon, He's a guy that, you know, Jarrett Perez, our intern, got to see this past weekend and really liked him. And we've liked him at camps. Mm-hmm. He's sort of that body type. He's about a 6'4", 260-pound, strong side defensive end who probably puts on the weight and can scoot down and play defensive tackle. That's a guy that USC may want to revisit down the line as well. He's committed to Stanford. But, hey, you know what? USC can get guys away from Stanford if they're putting together a good season. So it's one of those things where you're looking at a lot of strong side defensive ends, guys that really should put their hand on the ground, even if they're playing a little bit of hybrid in high school and they're good enough athletes to do it at the high school level. They're probably not doing that in college. And that's sort of where Mateo Ungale sort of falls in the line with me too. I, I think he's a guy that definitely at 265, 270, his best ball is going to be played with his hand on the ground. And so if USC feels like, yeah, maybe they are falling behind a bit, you want to be able to put some options out there and recruit some other guys. And so I, I think, you know, with Caleb Bryant, there's Oregon's there. They're recruiting him very hard. He decommits from Utah. But Oregon was already there, you know, along with USC. So they're going to have some competition with him. You know, Pittsburgh, Mississippi, kind of interesting because USC just got an administrator from Mississippi State. So, you know, you wonder if maybe there's a little bit of um, relationship there. They offered him right around the time that that was announced. So there's some various different angles that USC can play. They'll need to get some of these guys on campus for visits. But I think that it's not a stretch to say that maybe some of this is because the feeling around Mateo and Galilei's recruitment is maybe they're just not as confident as they were um, going into their official visit or maybe even coming out of their official visit. The Ohio State trend uh, really started to pick up, I think, on the back end uh, as we got out of June into July. Now, obviously, going into kind of like spring or, you know, the summer, everyone was talking about kind of O-line, 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 O-line. And now O-line is like, hey, we're chilling. You know, Josh Henson's like, look at me. I did all this work. 
I got my foundation. And now it's like you look at D-line and, you know, they're sitting there with one commit right now and, and Grant Bucky, you know, six foot five, you know, 260, 265, who we really like, you know, three-star guy, maybe a guy who can fight for a four-star down the line with a big senior year. But that's a nice little piece to start with. But we know USC needs just as impactful of a defensive line class that USC needs for on the offensive side because – you know, I think a lot of people expect this to be the final season for a guy like Tuli Tuopolotu. You know, Nick Figueroa, he's coming, winding down on his uh, college career. This is his final season. Brandon Peely also winding down on his college career. So USC really needs to restock this defensive line. And, you know, they're sitting with one right now going to the season. Gerard, do you think there's a sense of not panic, but... You're kind of looking at it like they, you feel like you they should have been maybe in a better spot going into the season. Should they have been in a better spot? I don't know. I think there was just a lot of confidence with Mateo Ungalale, and they felt like that was going to be the guy that ultimately was sort of the anchor on the defensive line. And it's not to say that that's you know a foregone conclusion and he's going right. to end up going to Ohio State or another school. I just think, you know, if anything, there's been a lesson learned from our boy Dante Williams because it just seems like Dante Williams always has good options. If there's one guy going somewhere else, Dalen Austin, quarterback from Long Beach Poly, commits to LSU, it, there's just not any panic. There's no reason to think that USC's not going to still have one of the better defensive back classes in the nation because Dante Williams is just going to will it to be. And so maybe they're taking a picture, a, a page out of that book and making sure that they have some decent options on the defensive line. It was interesting, you know, going back to the Terrence Green visit and that not happening, and now all of a sudden you're sort of back into this, well, you know, they got Grant Bucky, and Grant Bucky sort of has that same body and can play that same or play that same position. I mean, Caleb Bryant and, and, and Elijah Hughes are, are kind of the same type of body and position as well. And I think Elijah Hughes is like 6'2", 6'3", 265. But he's a guy that's going to 100% put his hand on the ground and he's going to play defensive end maybe initially, but potentially maybe moves inside. And I think with five technique, that's always the potential. You, you, you never really know if that guy is going to maintain that size or he's going to put on weight and his ceiling is higher playing at the three technique. Because the three technique is where the money's made. Three technique is, and this is something with West Coast players, it's always difficult. It seems like there's a stigma that comes with just getting to that 280, 285 pound range. And so many guys, they fight it. You know, they don't want to do what Sean Cody did. They want to fight it and they want to maintain that 250, that 260. But at the end of the day, they could put on 20 pounds and really maintain a majority of their quickness and their speed and just be bigger, stronger football players. And, and a lot of them could. You know, I remember. Kyle Moore was a football player that USC recruited from Georgia, uh, Houston County, way back in the day. This was um, right after they won their national championship game. And Kyle Moore was being recruited by Georgia, Miami, et cetera. And USC was able to get him. And he was 6'6", about 260. And, boy, he fought the whole time when he was at USC to (laughs) maintain that 255, 250 weight. And I'm like, Kyle – Dude, you could be 280 easy. You're not going to get a whole lot slower. But, dude, you you drop 10 pounds, 20 pounds, you're not going to get a whole lot faster. You know, it's one of those things. You're looking at diminishing returns. Yeah, you may get, you know, 
uh, go from running a, a four eight nine to a four eight six. It's like, okay, is that really a big difference between you running a four eight nine and being you know twenty pounds heavier? You know that if you're able to maintain that speed but get that much stronger and play a position which again is more of a money position for defenses. I mean, that's really the way you want to go. But I think for a lot of West Coast guys, and Kyle wasn't even West Coast, but, you know, obviously he's playing for USC. There's almost this GQ mentality of like, oh, no, 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 I want to keep my beach body. You know, I don't want 285, man. That's, you know, that's too that's too big. You know, that's almost I could almost be 300 pounds at that size. It's uh, something that I think uh, some of these Pac-12 schools are, are fighting against in terms of nutrition, which you don't see that out south. You don't see that in the Midwest. Those guys, if they're anywhere near being 270 and they could play better at 290, they're going to be 290. 290, Gerard. Did you see – you mentioned Hughes, but did you see his junior stats? Yeah, I think he had like – what was it, 12 and a half sacks? It says – a hundred. I don't know if this was – no, it says 113 tackles, 24 and a half sacks in 10 games. Wow, 24. No, I didn't see that. <laughs> I didn't see it was 24 and a half sacks. I'm well, more like 113 tackles. That is like, I don't see that a lot for like a defensive lineman at all. I was, I thought it was a typo. It still might be a typo, but I don't know. It's in there in his, his official scouting report thing. So 130 tackles, 24 and a half sacks at, at uh, Virginia 6A. I have no idea what Virginia 6A. I don't know what level of competition this is really, but that is mightily impressive in 10 games. That's all. I I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah. I mean, he pops off of film. He's very quick. You know, his initial burst off the ball is the thing that really jumps out at you. He's from Washington Liberty high school. I do not know that high school from a hole in the ground when it comes to Virginia football. I mean, I know Hampton, I know some of those schools in Virginia, but I don't know Washington Liberty. So in terms of competition level or or how that's, um, you know, divvied up in Virginia, I don't know. Certainly, you know, he's got Stanford up there. He's got Virginia Tech, Duke, and then it's like James Madison and some other schools. So I, I don't know if it's one of those things where he's just a late bloomer. I mean, with those type of numbers and he's a track guy as well, I think he throws shot put. Throw shoddy and basketball. You would figure he would be on the radar for a lot of people. Yeah. That there wouldn't be something that, uh, you know, crept up on somebody. I mean, he got his offer from Virginia in July. I think it was the late July. So the, the local schools are just sort of discovering him as well. So that's one of those things when you talk about, is it a little late in the game? I mean, it sounds like it's a little late in the game for Virginia to be offering <laughs> a scholarship at this point, but not USC. No, absolutely not. And this isn't me saying that this is what's going to be, but he absolutely feels like one of those guys where, like, in like four years, he's like a like a first round draft pick or something. Like one of those guys just slips under the radar or whatnot. So, but that's just like ridiculous stats, and I just had to uh, throw that out there. Uh, Gerard, I think it's time we take our break. That sound good? Is that a that was a very sort of hesitant? I wasn't sure if that was a statement. Well, because usually, because usually it's like it's usually like well into an hour, and we just about to hit the hour right now. So I kind of keep it. But the last couple podcasts, it's been like hour twenty, hour fifteen into it. So I'm a little bit like thrown off by that. So I think it's time we take a little break. We're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about some fall camp, post fall camp. That just wrapped. We're in mock game week. Uh, we're going to talk about the upcoming high school schedule, where we're going to be, some of the big games on schedule. 
And then we're going to talk a little bit Manti Teo, uh, Gerard. I know a lot of people are excited to get your thoughts on that. Okay. I think um, the thing that's throwing you off is looking outside and seeing it's pitch black. I think that's yeah. the abyss. Well. <laughs> the abyss. But we'll take a ba- quick commercial break and we'll be uh, right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Gerard, welcome back. How was your break? I looked into the abyss and the abyss stared back. Well, you know what is over is the abyss that is fall camp. I didn't realize that didn't make that did not make any sense, but it's almost eleven o'clock and I'm I'm riding that loop right now. So I know Gerard, you wanted to kind of talk a little bit about post camp post-fall camp, some stuff there. You know, there's a lot of uh, newcomers making some plays, stuff like that. And I know people want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they want to get your thoughts. You're at every practice, and you saw more of the warm-ups and individual <laughs> periods that we got to see, you know. the, the, the And crumbs, tunnel walks, and tunnel walks. And tunnel walks. The crumbs that we get from practice, Chris monopolized those. And is going to formulate it into a loaf of information. There you go. Talk about uh, metaphor. Um, but fall camp, definitely a bit of a abyss in terms of a grind. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly, you know, newcomer notebooks, we don't do those anymore because we really just don't have the information to make them relevant. Um, but we talked a little bit about Corey Foreman, and everybody's very nervous about Corey Foreman not playing. And but he's practicing now. He's practicing now, Gerard. Full, so full, full pads and all. Very important. You know, former five-star, a guy that someone like Caleb Bryant said he looked up to, you know, during the recruiting process, number one player in the nation, and how vital it is for USC to be able to develop those guys. Because even uh, fair or unfair, whether he's not playing uh, up to his potential, that will be used against USC negatively on the recruiting trail. It's just what happens. And we talked about that, so not to rehash that, but yeah. I mean, in terms of these newcomers and the guys that uh, USC had maybe in the 2022 class, maybe guys that are just newcomers in terms of some of these big transfers, because now some of these big transfers come with a lot of notoriety. Any of these guys going to be guys, any of these guys you think are going to make an initial splash? Is there a group of players from that seven-man 
strong 2022 class that you think are kind of immediate contributors for USC? I think that in terms of that group of like, these are going to be guys, it really seems like one freshman, Relique Brown, absolutely looks like a guy. And I know we talked a little bit about him prior on this podcast, but his momentum and his buzz and the hype is just building for number 14, where it kind of looks like, I know they have, you know, three really good, talented running backs, but I think it's going to be a, a challenge to, you know, not get the ball in this ki- this kid's hands because every, you know, all these scrimmages is kind of where he kind of shines. And if you look at kind of the videos that USC has been posting, it always seems like Relique is making some big play and, you know, Travis Dye, the veteran, kind of raved about him on Tuesday. Like, everything he does sort of, like, impresses me. The way he catches the ball, the way he he runs. He said his movement, his, the way he moves with his body, that's – the way he moves – sorry, not, not his body, but the way he moves is, quote-unquote, second to none. Kind of had a quote, one of those, like, headlining quotes where it's like, you know, this kid is going to win – uh, awards in the coming future like that's kind of what his talent is and you know listening to Travis die he sounds like a like a proud mentor and this is a guy who could take you know carries away from him and touches away from him but you know Travis die very much about the team and I think he sees kind of the potential and how much better this offense is when you have a weapon like Relique Brown and there's no one on this this roster that's like Relique Brown, and the only person that I think can come close to that won't be here until uh, next next fall or next summer with uh, with Zachariah Branch and kind of the dynamicness that he brings and uh, speed that he has. And so Relique Brown, totally a unique weapon for this offense. And Travis Dye mentioned how you know he he needs to just keep his head down. You know he's going to have some freshman mistakes, but needs to work through those, and he's. He also added that, you know, he doesn't even really make that many mistakes, even though he is a freshman. So that's encouraging to hear. But it's just looking more and more like Relique Brown is going to get some touches this year. How can many? Give, I don't know. Can we give a nod to Relique Brown's creativity? Not on the field, although he is known for being creative. He is a guy with some great moves in the open field. But as it was explained to me by Chris Torino, yours truly, that the number 14, which is a very odd number for a running back, very odd number for really anybody but a quarterback and a punter, in my opinion. <laughs> Although Makai Lemon does also wear number 14. So it's a, it's a strange number, a little yeah. less strange at receiver. It's a QB for, number, yeah. Sam Darnold, last back. 14, yeah. Yeah, but for a running back, oddly, but you told me. Tell me why, as you understand it, Willie Brown wears number 14. Well, I'm well, I don't know if this is I don't know if this is like on record, but like I'm not really good at math, but like one plus four, as we all know, equals five. And I'm told, you know, five. I think there was a pretty good player that used to wear number five at USC. So and Relique, you know, has some of those qualities, some of those uh, skills and abilities. So. I think that's maybe that's not the reason it should be officially the reason now. Well, that, we can't talk to freshmen until they play in a game. So that'll be one of the first questions that we ask him. 
that's a that's a great uh, little sidebar as to uh, Willie Brown sort of thinking outside the box a little bit about numbers, <laughs> doing a little addition with his name, image, and likeness. But yeah, I mean, and it sounds like Willie's going to be a running back. I mean, we kind of yeah. talked about that during the recruiting process. Oklahoma originally recruiting him as a slot receiver, and you kind of roll your eyes like, ah, I mean, yeah, he can play in the slot, but this is a guy that at modern day really runs between the tackles more than anything. In fact, Ray Biggins and I, we talked about him as a player and he was always very surprised how modern day used him, And they used him just as a standard traditional running back um, out of that one back set. And they just run right up the middle of the offense and not necessarily a guy that attacked the edges a whole lot. So this offense that USC has now is probably going to use more of his repertoire in terms of being able to work inside out and outside in and they will probably use them a little bit in the slot but i think with the deluge of receiver talent that they can move around they don't necessarily need him there and they do need a little bit of depth at running back so um that's going to be really fun to see him play running back and to see usc have a dynamic runner like that again they really have not had a guy like that since what maybe stephen carr's freshman year yeah, I think that's something I mentioned when we were talking on Tunnel Vision about, like, are we going to get kind of that, like, that opener, Rice, uh, like, similar to Stephen Carr's uh, opener against Western Michigan when he was here as a freshman. And I remember, you know, that first kind of, like, uh, I, I believe it was a PRP or maybe it was a practice or the first, like, practice of uh, fall camp that year, his freshman year, where he was just turning heads and his speed and his elusive was just on display. You know, unfortunately that back injury kind of sapped a lot of, you know, Stephen Carr's, you know, first, first step and that kind of, that, that acceleration. But that's kind of what it reminds you of, at least for me in terms of like things I can compare it to. But, you know, I was asking, are we going to see kind of that, that game one moment for Relique Brown at the Rice game, they get in late and he busts off like a 60-yard run or something like that. I I, I tend to think if he's going to get touches, I think we're going to see something like that in that, that first week. And fans will get to see kind of the coming of the Relique Brown show and what, what's in store. Eric Gentry's been another guy that's gotten a lot of headlines here in the last oh, yeah. stages of oh, yeah. uh, fall camp and certainly with the scrimmages you know pads go on and it becomes full contact and some of these guys separate themselves and I'm just glad to see that USC is using him as a will linebacker because there was a lot of talk and everybody sees him at face value being 6'6 and you know 210 220 pounds and you immediately go okay that's a that's an edge rusher that you just need to put more weight on but I was talking to Chris Cartman over at the ASU site and he really emphasized you know, this this dude, he, you just wouldn't think it, the, the length that he has and the height that he has, but he absolutely moves with the agility and the balance and the spatial awareness to play in the middle of the field, and he's great at it because he has great ball skills. Have we been able to see enough of him uh, in actuality to, to rubber stamp that, or are we still from, you know, what we've been able to see, and when I say we, I mean mostly you, to be able to say – yeah, Eric Gentry really is that guy. This week, I feel like, is the most we've seen because we're starting to see some of the defense run against the scout offense. And we're get to, we're, we get to, like, watch the pretty much the entire P5 
period of that, of, you know, the scout defense or excuse me, the scout offense going against the defense. And obviously that's 11 on 11. We don't really get to see 11 on 11 prior to this. So that's like the most like in-depth, really telling stuff that we get to see. And you get to see, you know, uh, uh, Eric Gentry play the run or kind of drop back in coverage. And today I wrote about it in my ghost notes uh, about he's just so glued to tight ends when they have him running that those coverages, he's just all over those guys, not even like a holding kind of way. He's just like right on their hip. I, uh, the scout quarterback kind of th- tried to throw to Ethan Ray over the top. They were kind of doing goal line stuff. And lo and behold, you know, six foot six, Ayers Gentry's right there. Got his arm up and everything. And kind of Caleb Williams, he spoke to the media today and he kind of talked about how uh, Gentry just causes so much problems for the quarterbacks in this offense because he's so long. And he kind of just can reach up there and grab 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 footballs out of the air. And he kind of broke down kind of that interception Gentry had in that first scrimmage. And Caleb just kind of lost track of him, which is a funny thing to say for a six foot six linebacker. But he just didn't see him. And Gentry kind of jumped up out of the air and snagged that that interception. And that's kind of the 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 issues that he's causing. And Caleb was like, I'm just glad he's. He's on my team and I'm, you know, he's not the guy who's going to be playing against on Saturday. So Gentry getting a lot of first team reps when we're watching those kind of against that scout offense. And so he's trending towards, you know, maybe being a starter come week one. And I think I know I was super high on him being very important to this to this defense and a guy who is probably going to be a starter at some point. I know Raylan Goforth has had a really good, you know, spring camp and he had the leg up with. Gentry not being in, in spring camp and he uh, Raylan could kind of learn that offense, but the talent is just evident just watching him move and he doesn't really move like a, I think you would imagine maybe a six foot six linebacker. He kind of moves kind of smaller than that, but still pretty well. And he uses that, that length and that wingspan to his advantage. In, in the military and special forces, they would call that a force multiplier. He has the ability, I think with his height, to provide almost like another defender out there because you're not used Mm -hmm. to, especially if you're sprinting out and you're looking for that tight end, you're looking at that receiver dragging across the field. You're thinking, okay, that middle part of the field, I got a six foot six, two guy that's quick, but not necessarily going to be able to extend and make a play on the ball. And you throw the ball into that space. And all of a sudden this guy becomes a damn Jack in the box and just, you know, just jumps in the air and ends up being like this ability with his length to be able to make plays where you would think that you would have open space. That kind of reminds me a little bit of Braylon Shelby. And we were talking about him and his future impact piece and how he plays on the edge. And he's a different player than Eric Gentry, but I think I made even the comparison with him in that in the edge and space, he has this ability with his length and his agility and his quickness and his instincts to be able to play this sort of nether region of the RPO where the quarterback's on the edge and he's thinking, okay, am I going to pitch it? Am I going to keep it? Am I going to throw it? What am I going to do? And Braylon Shelby sort of can play two guys at once because of his length and his ability to play in space so well. And big guys usually can't do that. And certainly, you know, Braylon Shelby being 235, 240 is even bigger. I mean, Gentry, you know, he hopes to be at that size when he's ready for the draft. But I think that that length and having that agility, it's it's very rare to have those guys. And I think that's certainly a unique um, 
and trait and gift that he has. It's going to be interesting to see how he plays against the run. I think that's another thing where, you know, talking to some sources at ASU, they were like, you know, he can play the run really well. You would think that he would really get killed in the leverage game because he's so tall, but he's actually very good about getting around blocks and making himself a, a disruptor in the offensive backfield against the run, not just against the pass. Of course, with his speed and his length, he's going to be very difficult to throw against, but he actually brings it. He has the physicality near the line of scrimmage. That's where you would think maybe Raylan Goldforth would have a step up on him and be at an advantage because he's a guy that's a little more of a stout, you know, sort of 6'1", 6'2", 235, 240-pound linebacker. But I'm told, you know, Eric Gentry can step up and be that guy as well. So that's something, obviously, we don't get to see with the scrimmages. We don't get to see a lot of the 9-on-9 where you – really, you know, kind of emphasize the run game. We're going to see that perhaps against Rice a little more and see if Eric Gentry is able to uh, step up and play that position when you're playing against the more physical run teams as well. Yeah, Brian Odom kind of mentioned with that the uniqueness of his his body type and kind of in in how it relates to kind of tackling. He just has more surface area kind of to tackle. And I've seen him in those kind of scout periods kind of play against a running back and he just like envelops them just like the whole body just like wraps them up so I always wonder if it's like football players are kind of like when they play against him it's like we've never played against a defender that's six foot six we don't really know what to expect it's like something you don't really see on a football field so it's like a quarterback's like "Ah, I'm not really used to this Uh, do I throw it I have to change the way I throw to kind of get it over a guy who's this tall or running backs like this guy's so long it's like a octopus holding me or something it's like he's got such long arms and he actually got to talk to the media today kind of his first media debut and obviously he's kind of a philadelphia guy but i would never have guessed he was from philadelphia he didn't have like an accent or anything like that but i kind of asked him about this kind of chip on his shoulder kind of deal because brian odom had mentioned that and he was like yeah i feel like i'm disrespected i feel like this defense is disrespected and i want to kind of set that right and I want to kind of prove myself this season and he was asked about playing middle linebacker he says yeah last year I was kind of playing off instinct and he feels like he's really grown the short time that he's here and he decided he wanted to come to USC uh, to a place to make history and a place that has history and he was looking for a fresh start so a lot of things going on with him but he, he seems like he's on track to be a be a star here at 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 USC Here's a question, because I very rarely get to ask the questions, but let me throw another one at you in terms oh, okay. of okay. players, um, interesting body types, things that can affect the recruiting process going forward in terms of maybe success they see with the current roster and how it impacts how they want to recruit going forward. Any players, whether it be offense or defense there, that are making an impact in fall camp that are maybe surprising or, or maybe affect how USC looks at recruiting a position going forward? That's an interesting, interesting question. Uh, I don't know if this is kind of uh, the answer to your question, but a guy who, you know, USC has talked about, not talked about, but a guy who kind of came out of nowhere in fall camp, he kind of came out of nowhere in the recruiting cycle too, is kind of Dejon Benton. Uh, you know, a, a three-star a late Washington State flip in the 2019 uh, class. And he has been 
since like week two of fall camp been like running with the first team uh, defensive line at defensive end opposite of Tuli Tu Pelotu, you know, a, a, a spot that Nick Figueroa was kind of pegged for. And again, this is kind of team pursuit drill, so I, I don't think those are fully the full picture of what the first team defense looks like. But even in scout against the scout offense, Dejon Benton right out there, number 79, opposite of Tui Tu Pelotu. So this that's really a guy who's kind of been like the whoa okay this guy is i guess serious they're gonna they're gonna start him and it's gonna be interesting to see because obviously not a lot of people are familiar with dejan i feel like we've sort of been on the the dejan benton radar for a while because i always feel like when i watched him practice or play in scrimmages you know under helton's staffs or defensive staffs i always feel like he would make random plays where he would just get in the backfield you know he's not the biggest defensive lineman, about two, uh, six foot two, two seventy, maybe two eighty, kind of smaller. But he's super quick, you know, relative to other guys, and that's kind of what this defense like. Sean Nua said himself, you know, this is a guy that's perfect for what we want to do with this defense. So Ben is like, you know, kind of perfect fit for this Alex Grinch scheme, and it seems like. 2022 is going to be the year of Dejan Ben to see get those opportunities to you know be a real contributor for this defense. So that's the kind of guy that sticks out in my mind. That's interesting. I mean, certainly we've talked about Alex Grinch's use of mobile defensive linemen and sometimes sacrificing size for mobility and quickness, and so that sort of mirrors that philosophy for him up front. Um, It'll be interesting to see how that plays out against Stanford or UCLA or some of those schools that want to run the ball a little more. Certainly Notre Dame will try to exploit that. I mean, you think Brandon Peely would be that guy that you would play next to Thule. Uh, But um, yeah, we'll see if that maintains. And certainly it would be something that you may see reflected on the recruiting trail in terms of defensive line recruiting. And, you know, we were just talking about defensive line recruiting and, and talking about Mateo Ngulele, and we're talking about uh, Elijah Hughes and, and some of these later offers and, you know, even uh, Cameron Brandt or Caleb Bryant, a lot of guys that are in that 6'3", 6'4", range, 260 pounds. So you see them eventually getting bigger, but, you know, you're talking 285, 290. You're not talking about a bunch of 315, 330-pound uh, defensive tackles, nose guards. Absolutely not. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Dejan Benton experiment works out for this defensive line. And I actually find it kind of funny because he's kind of come out of nowhere. And I remember uh, seeing the news about the flip while I was leaving or arriving. I don't know which one, but uh, arriving for Nick Figueroa's uh, commitment ceremony. So I always find those two intertwined. And here we are. Benton's kind of the first team over Nick Figueroa. So Interesting to see, and I'll be interested to see how that looks come uh, week one against Rice. Now, Gerard, Friday's coming up, which means we're going to be back out there at some high school games. So this is an interesting slate of schedules. I think the big one everyone's been talking about is St. John Bosco going out there for their season opener against Allen, Texas, and their, uh, like, $90 $90 billion stadium or whatever it is, the the nicest high school stadium you'll ever see uh, at a high school. And we actually got a question 
from Cameron. He DM'd me on Instagram. Apparently, I'm reachable there. Uh, Cameron from Frisco, Texas, and he wanted to know from us, what and who should I look out for in this Bosco Allen game? I think he is go- he's attending that game. Uh, he also gave a shout-out to uh, Hutchins Barbecue, which is uh, in Frisco, Texas. So, Gerard, who should he be looking out for in uh, Bosco versus Allen? Well, should we be looking out for Hutchins Barbecue as a future sponsor of the podcast? Maybe I think so. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. We're we're an official sponsored podcast. I can't just be giving out shout outs. I know. I, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But for That's... this one, but for this one, I'll do it. I'll we'll for come, this one, but but next one will cost. With great sponsors comes great responsibility. Exactly. So, uh, with Bosco, obviously, we're very familiar with, and we've talked about Mateo Angulale. Uh, we've talked about guys like Marcellus uh, Williams. Uh, they have a plethora of players that uh, transferred in guys like Aaron Williams from Centennial, uh, four-star quarterback that's uh, committed to Louisville. Just look at the Louisville um, commitment list and you'll see uh, you quite go. a few players from St. John Bosco to watch out for. Um, Bosco has a, a lot of really good players, uh, specifically in the defensive backfield. They're like overflowing with guys that are like three-star, four-star guys. Um, I don't necessarily know on the offensive line, you know, some of the younger players that they have, and that's probably going to be the biggest question is consistency in the passing game with Pierce Clarkson now looking like the lone starter. Uh, He had shared reps in previous years for St. John Bosco, and now he's kind of the man. So how consistent can he be, um, you know, managing that offense and how much uh, pass protection is he going to be able to get against some of the better teams they play against? Allen, I don't know a whole lot about in terms of, you know, where they're going to rank among the better teams in Texas this particular year. Traditionally, they're one of the best teams in Texas, certainly one of the best teams in the DFW area, um, but they don't have a lot of star power. Now, that's not necessarily to say that they won't be a team that will be able to run with Bosco because you always have that nuance of if you've got a very senior laden team and they're just a good football team. And we saw this many years with De La Salle where they didn't have the type of talent that you saw with Long Beach Poly or modern day, but they're still able to play their system and be very good. So, you know, Bosco has to put their A game out there. They're going out uh, to Texas. I know Texas got like some really bad thunderstorms through Dallas, uh, either it was today or yesterday. So um, we'll see if that becomes an impact in the game um, Friday night, but uh, or or Saturday. I'm not sure if it's a Friday game or a Saturday game, but uh, nevertheless, Friday I think, game. I think um, you know most of the guys to look out for in terms of Division One prospects are probably at St. John Bosco. I think you would agree there, Chris. Yeah, I don't really. There's no real standout names for me you know for the Allen eagles i think obviously the big one is uh i'm gonna butcher the name i'm sorry zena umezulu uh whose older brother was a usc target nito umezulu from the 2022 class a four-star offensive lineman but zena is a six foot four 210 pound edge rusher number 20 nationally in the 24 7 sports rankings number two edge prospect in the nation Number 31 overall in the 24-7 sports composite. That's their big star power right there. Is he 2024 or 2023? He is 2024. Zena okay, is. Yeah. Uh, his brother was a 2022. Uh, yeah, USC yeah. did offer him, I believe, on Nito's official visit. 
uh, to USC, I believe. I'm remembering that correctly. But 46 tackles uh, last season, 10 tackles for a loss, six sacks. Uh, a devastatingly talented edge rusher. So that's going to be a big test for for Bosco's offensive line. So I think that's the guy you're going to want to watch for Allen. And yeah, just pretty much anyone that's starting for Bosco is probably has a significant offer list and is at least a three-star prospect. So that's kind of the guys you want to look out for. St. John Bosco also had some interesting headlines this oh, past week with NIL. I mean, you talk about true. all the talent that they have and all their guys being like at least three-star players that are starting for them. Uh, it sounds like somebody wanted to step up and <laughs> give them an NIL deal, which came with a little controversy, surprisingly, right? NIL is uh, so... Uh, it's controversial? So, huh. And non-controversial, it seems, at every turn. Yet here we have articles popping up all over the place uh, with them getting an NIL deal, which St. John Bosco, the high school, was quick to put out a statement saying that the high school themselves had no affiliation. They were not involved with this deal. This was something that was done uh, via the kids and their parents. And so uh, sort of interesting, one of the first schools, I believe, in the country where the whole football program was given an NIL deal. And I believe it comes out to like $400 per kid, which I don't know about you, Gerard, but like $400 to me in high school was like 10 G's. Yeah, that would, that's a pretty that's that's you know a couple Christmases and a lot of lawns and a lot mm-hmm. of chores to to be able to save up four hundred bucks. So I mean, it's not nothing. It's certainly not uh, you know the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we hear about with uh, some of the other players that are um, you know the higher ranked five star guys. And then obviously we get into the collective deals, which seem to be more in the millions. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it's interesting, and it's you know St. John Bosco certainly getting a lot of notoriety for it. I'm sure there's a lot of players looking around, and they're at their high schools thinking, you know, where's my NIL deal? This is, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of pomp and circumstance when it comes to this stuff. And you know, the the, the first company to do it, I'm sure, is going to get a lot of free publicity out of it, and that's a positive thing. It does come with some controversy, and we talked about that. It seems like every NIL deal anymore um, seems to come with some controversy. I shouldn't say that. That's that's a bit of a, uh, an overstatement. I mean, we just saw Jordan Addison get a deal with American Airlines, or was it United Airlines? United Airlines. United. Yeah, because United is uh, promoting uh, – they, they're the sponsor for the name rights of the Coliseum. Um, so, you know, I mean, and, and that came when – that was just a positive story. But certainly when we get into the – the recruiting sort of limbo that we have between committed players and getting to college and guys that are just prospects. That seems where NIL is a bit of a mess and there always seems to be controversy that follows um, the majority of the deals and the the rumors of numbers that we hear coming from uh, various different agents, um, God uncles, God stepfathers and uh, trainers. I'm waiting for one Modern Day to announce their own NIL deal and also the entire Trinity League to announce their respective NIL deals to to kind of keep up with uh, with the with Bosco because the Trinity League is basically like its own mini college league at this point with, you know, transfers now NIL. So it's going to get uh, it's going to get interesting in, in that league after 
Bosco kind of set the bar for for this because I can tell you right now I know there's probably a bunch of eighth graders and seventh graders who are looking at this like hmm Bosco seems like the move I there's no girls on campus but I get four hundred dollars <laughs> I get four hundred dollars well I'll tell you yeah OC Buckeyes <laughs> uh, IE Ducks you know all of those teams are definitely looking. Uh, at this. And, and certainly I think modern day will be quick to be able to counter uh, to some extent. I think Trinity league is already making probably good money on sponsorships. I mean, it's not really NIL for them. Um, it's uh, just more a, a matter of, um, you know, just the normal sort of sponsorships that they get from companies, which they've been doing for years, but now it's, you know, trickling down to the players themselves and the, and the families and the parents. And so um, this is again, one of those things where, you know, the first company to do it gets, a lot of free publicity out of it. It's a good move. It's a smart move. Probably, uh, you know, when you break it down as to how much you're actually paying for it. But um, this is uh, kind of, you know, the future uh, as it looks like. So uh, folks got to get used to it. I know there's a lot of people that are sort of cringing over it, but it is what it is. You know, you kind of have to acknowledge it, move forward. And hopefully, you know, there's continued regulation and people learn from what's working and what's not working. And if they need to dial back certain things and that's what they need to do. But um, I don't think the genie's going back in the bottle. Speaking of modern day, they had their own big game. I know we mentioned Bosco going out to Allen, Texas for their matchup. Los Al's going all the way to um, Florida for a, a national matchup against American heritage. But modern day has a big game and they're traveling to Las Vegas to take on Zachariah Branch and Bishop Gorman, which that should be a very fun game. You know, seeing Zach Branch go up against a Trinity League defense and a top uh, national power like modern day. And, uh, you know, Elijah Brown going up against Bishop Gorman and all their talent out there. Bishop Gorman can certainly hold their own against the Trinity League team. So that's going to be a fun one. I don't know if that one's broadcast. I would not be surprised if that is sort of streaming somewhere. Uh, but other big games on the schedule include uh, Sarah, who I just saw. They're going to be going to Long Beach Poly. That's a big local rivalry. You know, it's not uh, it's not Bosco at Allen or Monterey at Bishop uh, Gorman, but that is a big local Southern California game, and that's probably the one I'm going to be at uh, at Gerard this Friday. Get to see uh, Dylan Williams, who had a really good start to his season for Poly, and then see if Roderick Pleasant can. Uh, Shut down Jason Robinson, another USC commit on that 2024 class. So that should be a, a fun one, and I'm excited to go with that one. It's also really close to my house, so I can't beat that. There you go. There you go. Beating Friday night traffic is always a big deal when it comes to uh, covering these football games. I, going back to modern-day Bishop Gorman, mm-hmm, I think that mm-hmm. will be a pretty good game. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see – you know, a, a very experienced Bishop Gorman team um, going against Modern Day, which has been a complete juggernaut. You know, we saw Modern Day go out to Duncanville, Texas, and obliterate uh, the Panthers last year in an out-of-state uh, intersectional game, which a lot of people thought was going to be a lot closer, and, and Modern Day just ran away from it. Modern Day is a little different this year. I mean, they're, they're not quite the same team on the outside, but they still have really good offensive line, and I think they've got a really good running game, and that's very much, I think, where you want to lean towards if you're modern day. I think with Elijah Brown, you have some very good play action possibilities. Um, they don't, you know, at face value, they don't have a lot of like those big time weapons 
on the edge. Um, they're still good, and they've still got some young talent. Uh, I think C.J. Uh, Williams' little brother is actually playing for them and did some 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 nice things when we watched him at the seven-on tournament at USC. Um, can't remember if he's a freshman going to be a sophomore. Or he's actually just going to be a freshman this year, but um, it's young, unproven guys that are on the edges more for them than it's been in years past. Uh, we'll see what they are able to do defensively. It's a young defensive secondary, but they do got some guys uh, that are super talented, already have multiple offers. And that's going to be the really interesting thing. I think that's where the test for modern day comes is, is with Zach branch. And, you know, first of all, can they get that being Bishop Gorman, the ball to Zach branch deep? You know, we kind of talked about that a little bit uh, with the Sarah offense and, and having those weapons on the outside. But it's like, hey, you know what? If you can have all the weapons on the outside you want, you got to be a get a quarterback that has the arm to be able to stretch the field to get them the ball. And so, you know, are they going to use that branch more as just a guy to try to get him quick and open space? And it's going to be a lot of little dinking and dunking to try to use his speed in open space to get him the ball. Or are you going to be able to use him to stretch the field? Because stretching the field will certainly open other things up for Bishop Corman. Um, it could be a bit of a slugfest, though. <laughs> it could definitely be a bit I of a slugfest. I love a good slugfest. You know me. Up, I love a good slugfest. Yeah, up front. And, uh, you know, that plays to modern-day strengths. But at the same time, it's a little different than some of the games that they've won in the past. Um, but uh, I like Elijah Brown in that type of game where, you know, it's a little more conservative and he can manage the game and he's not out there like having to make a lot of plays. It may not be like, you know, a, a, a game where modern day puts up 50 points, but nevertheless, um, you know, with that offensive line and uh, the run game, I, I would give the edge to modern day. I think modern day can, can win uh, Bishop Gorman. I think it's the main thing for them is not to be one dimensional and, and they have to try to, stretch the field, but I, I just don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the quarterback talent to know whether they can really do that against modern day. But again, modern day has young talent there, man. They've got some dudes mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. are 2024, 2025 guys uh, in that secondary that are going to be guys. They're, they're not household names at this point, but they're going to be guys here in a couple years. And a, and a few of them um, already have scholarship offers from USC. Before we move on to some documentary stuff, do you know where you might be going uh, Friday night? No idea. Flip a coin and I'll find out <laughs> as I'm walking out the door. I know where Jared wants to go. That man wants to go to Las Vegas. Probably. He, he <laughs> would go. I mean, he's still looking forward to going to Wyoming for uh, that uh, defensive end that USC is going to offer. The next Solomon Bird uh, from Casper, Wyoming. We should um, just send him to uh, Arlington, Virginia. Oh, for you? Yeah. I, that, yeah that hell, uh, if we texted him right now, like, we need you to cover the Arlington game up there. Uh the what is it? Christian Washington? I don't know. Liberty Washington or someone. Whatever. They'd be yeah, like, all right, yeah. all right, yeah, I'll go. I'll I'll leave right now. <laughs> that man has the drive to go anywhere, no questions asked. So appreciate it. Shout out to Jarrett. Uh, let's get into our final kind of talking point before we get into listener questions. And this is one I'm kind of excited for, Gerard. And I have a question that kind of is going to lead us off into it. This comes from uh, Jagger. Uh, not sure if either of you have watched the Manti Teo documentary yet, but he talks about what he essentially he but he talks about he was essentially headed to USC until the last second. I'd like to hear Gerard's view on the recruitment of Teo and the shock of him not ending up at SC. Now, Gerard, 
we kind of talked a little bit about this, me and you, a little bit over the phone. We were talking about other stuff, and I was like, there's a lot of good stuff here. I need you to save it. I need you to bottle that up. I frequently say this to Gerard now that we have a podcast. I was like, save it for the podcast. Save it for the podcast. So, Gerard, I'm pretty sure you haven't watched the documentary, correct? No, I no, I refuse to watch the documentary. For sure. For sure. And Who was it I, produced by? Is it executive producer Manti Teo? <laughs> I did not actually see that. I did not. Wouldn't it be more so his dad was the executive producer? But uh, I, it's a two-part. I only watched the first part. And I know we're not getting into the full, like, I don't want to get into, like, the full, like, minutia of the documentary and kind of, like, obviously the big story. But the it, USC stuff was interesting and obviously – that was in the first part, so I was able to kind of uh, watch that. Uh, but just first off the back, I off the bat, I love documentaries, and obviously this is a story that I saw in real time or whatever. You know, obviously a lot of us were, especially now that I cover college recruiting or whatnot. So I was very interested in watching this documentary. It, obviously, with documentaries, it's like you have to kind of just it's up to supposed to be presented where it just it's out there for you to make your own judgment about what the truth is because i don't we're never going to get the full truth about this crazy ass story you know one of the wildest stories in college football but there is a lot of questions that are still left unanswered just having watched the first part there's things that don't like add up or make sense but i still enjoyed watching it and kind of obviously hearing these different points of views and, you know, their side of the story as to what happened. But, you know, just me watching it, it was like, I don't know really how Manti Teo did not end up at USC. Just kind of watching based off what he said, it was like, I grew up massive USC fan. That's where I wanted to go. You know, they show clips of Pete Carroll at his games. You know, I think it was hugging his dad or whatnot, but it's like, that's where I wanted to go. This was at the height of USC uh, national championships, the the pinnacle of you know Pete Carroll and his USC Trojans, and it was like that's where I wanted to go. Mentioned going to a recruiting event before signing day, and he kind of very kind of that's where it kind of set in. Where like this is where I'm going to go. Told his parents, told his dad. His dad was like, all right, that's where you want to go. Just make sure you pray on it. And then he kind of talked about how he was in school the next day and he was in the chapel. And he was praying on it, and he's like, God, this is where we're going to go. We're going to USC. But if this isn't where you want me to go, you know, kind of show me or something to that effect. And then he kind of mentioned that, how he was talking to. And I don't even know if this person is, like, important, but he mentioned him by name. He was like, I was talking to, like, a mentor, Gary Sadaway, I believe is what he said. He's like, I know you're going you're gonna to go to USC. You're going to be a, another one of their, their great Polynesian players. And then he added, you know, I always thought you would go to Notre Dame and be the only Manti Teo. And that is kind of the, I guess, in his story, the kind of change from going from set on USC to Notre Dame, fighting Irish. And obviously they showed clips from his signing day and how he was talking about how he was like sad, like legitimately sad about signing to Notre Dame. So just a wild recruitment. And I'm sure you have obviously a lot more to add on that. But 
I thought it was just fascinating to watch because I was still young in recruiting. I wasn't like super, super, well, I was kind of like my craziness of it, but I don't really remember how crazy that was. So obviously you are fully aware of, of, of that recruitment and, and how shocking it was in the end. Yeah, it was definitely shocking in the end. It wasn't a crazy recruitment as recruitments go during the process. I know there was some interesting things that happened with him and BYU because BYU was looked at initially as a big player for him because he and his family had talked a lot about religion and talked a lot about going on potentially a Mormon mission. And at some point in time, it was alleged that BYU had stripped his offer after a visit. And there was a lot of rumors and things that were said about what happened on the visit. And of course, with, you know, recruiting, it's hard to get the full story about what exactly happened. And it's usually one side or the other side. But nevertheless, BYU no longer became uh, a factor in his recruitment, which was great news for USC because at that point in time, USC felt like that was probably their greatest threat was BYU. And so, you know, from that point on, Manti Teo was looked at as uh, going to USC. USC was a clear favorite for him. Now, you have to remember the setting at this time to take you away from the 30,000-foot view and get a little closer to the 10-foot view, USC was losing Brian Cushing, Ray Maluga, uh, Kaluka Maivea, and Luther Brown, and Clay Matthews all that year. So you had four guys that would ultimately end up in the NFL draft. Three of them, I believe, were first-round picks. So USC was having to replace all these players that are on their way out. And that's what you have to do to, to, to maintain – that level of play that USC had. If you want to continue to be in the national championship hunt, you have to be able to bring in a stack of players because you're at some point inevitably going to lose a stack of players. And so it was not only Manti Tail that USC was recruiting hard, but it was also Vontez Perfect in that same class. Um, with Vontez Perfect, to make a long story short, because this is not about him, uh, USC went, you know, a three-month period over the summer of not really contacting him because he was nice, being recruited nice. by David Watson. And David Watson had been put on leave, and I won't get into that, but there were some personal <laughs> issues there. And Ken Norton Jr. was supposed to take over his recruitment, and Ken just didn't talk to him very much. And that really allowed ASU to get their foot in the door and put a lot of fear of academics into he and his family because he had did some issues at Centennial where he had to sit out a sophomore year because of grades and ASU knew this and they really hit that hard and said listen man you can come here we can get you in and out of here you'll stay eligible USC you're going to struggle academically and USC really I don't think did enough to ease his fears about academics and certainly they kind of dropped the ball a bit on uh, him, you know, at that point over the summer where he was committed to USC. And so you had Vontez Burfick kind of slipping um, at that point with USC, but Manta Teo still seemed like he was a lock for USC and he took his official visit. And there was a lot of uh, sort of snickers about, you know, him and going on a mission and a lot of the things behind the scenes about him and how religious he really was. I'll say that much. Uh, 
that was not necessarily what people thought. People felt like he's going to come play football and he wants to play football and he wants to develop and he wants to go to the NFL and USC is the place for him. And meanwhile, Notre Dame's recruitment, if I recall on his official visit, I believe they played Navy and they lost to Navy and the fans started throwing snowballs at the team as they walked off the field. So that was sort of looked at as the the final nail in the coffin for, for Notre Dame. People didn't think Notre Dame could really overcome that official visit and, and how bad everything sort of went for them on that official visit. They weren't a very good team at that point where USC was USC. They were rolling. And so, you know, we fast forward to closer to the signing day. And I remember everybody was very excited and optimistic. Uh, there was definitely uh, some, some, you know, feelings of uh, people were upset because they knew they were losing out on Vontaze Burbank. They knew that that was slipping and there was just, they didn't seem like they could really make a comeback in that. And, but they're like, well, you know, we're going to get Manti Teo and we're going to get Jarvis Jones, who was a really good player for them, but ended up having a neck injury and then USC medical staff would not clear him. So he went to Georgia, became an all American. And I think a first round pick for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I regress here. Um, and then you also had um, uh, Frankie Telford, who also committed to USC, who was a smaller linebacker recruit. He was like 5'11", 205 pounds, 210 pounds, but very fast and very dynamic as a linebacker. Um, he ended up having some heart issues. So he never played at USC. So it ended up being that, you know, Manti Teo, we didn't know all of this at the time, but he would have been a, a really big figure for them trying to get, you know, back that defense that they had with all those guys leaving. And signing day, we heard, you know, just, I, I think just before the actual signing day event, he was going to Notre Dame. And that was like the news broke before he actually went down to the event that he was committing to Notre Dame. And I remember he was at the event and he had to drive from like the North shore up by Kahuku all the way down to Honolulu where they have the event for all the high school athletes on signing day. And this was back in February signing day. And, um, I remember the real signing day, the real signing day. And I remember talking to some of the coaches and, uh, Pete Carroll, you know, talked to Manti Teo on that drive down to Honolulu before he was signing his documents. And um, he was just, you know, kind of like in tears. And Pete wanted to talk to his dad, Brian, and his dad just refused to talk to Pete on the phone. And, you know, there was some allegations and some things that, that came about that they felt like, you know, maybe that, that recruitment wasn't on the up and up. But, of course, you're going to have um, some of that. You know, when you when you lose a, a five star recruit that you feel like is going to make that big Im- impact of your program and you felt like you had him locked up for the whole year. You know, there's going to be those sort of uh, salty feelings. Um, but whether true or not, you know, the end result was him going to Notre Dame and USC um, losing out on him and Vontez perfect. And that um, that was that was a that really set them back when you lose that many good players from your roster and you're not able to continue to bring in that same level of talent. Cause you would think, you know, I think the result was, you know, USC having that year where they were in the Walnut bowl or almond bowl or whatever they called that in San Francisco. Walnut bowl. And they, and they had a very sort of pedestrian year there. And that was a result where, you know, they had some guys like Devon Kennard and some good players. Uh, but 
you know, they just didn't have the linebackers, the playmakers, you know, the real explosive type players in the back end, um, the Ray Malugas, the Brian Cushing types. Uh, and, and, and they just, they had a void there a bit. And that was because of that year that they, they lost all those linebackers and they weren't able to get perfect. They weren't able to get tail. Um, Jarvis Jones played as I think like a freshman and a sophomore and then ended up hurt and didn't play. And like I said, Frankie Telford never really suited up for them. So um, that was, you know, it, it was not just, um, you know, losing Manti Teo was really sort of that class was really uh, one of the first and only big swings and misses that Pete Carroll had while he was at USC. Yeah. Two quick follow-ups. One, did you ever interview Manti Teo? I did. I talked to Manti Teo several times. I uh, talked to his dad a bunch of times, probably even more than Manti. And they were always extremely generous with their time and very articulate through the process. And like I said, faith and religion was something that was always at the forefront for them. But then on the other side, behind the scenes, I had, you know, coaches kind of giving me the impression when it came to BYU that that it wasn't really going to be a big factor in his recruitment and that, you know, he wanted to go play football and that USC was, you know, talking about number 55 and talking about junior sale and that tradition. Um, one thing that his dad did say during the process was that, you know, Manti does like to row his own canoe. And that was sort of in response to everybody saying, well, he's just going to go to USC and it's just going to be another, you know, Polynesian player. Um, but, you know, obviously there's been a lot of success there too. So it's not like a bad thing for USC right. to be able to try to sell that. Uh, certainly you're walking in the steps of some legendary players at USC and Notre Dame had never really had that. But um, it was interesting. It, like I said, you know, it was not the Notre Dame of today. They were uh, kind of down a bit and they'd been, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much, worked by USC in consecutive years. And so they were trying to make them take a, make a move. And uh, that was part of what made it such a big surprise. Cause they just really weren't getting those type of players. And certainly they weren't winning those battles head to head against USC. And would you say that ranks as the biggest like recruiting battle loss for big balls, Pete? Yeah, probably. I, I would okay. I would say so. Obviously, with Vontaze perfect, I mean, people, for whatever reason, maybe because ASU is not a rival and they looked at the perfect situation as a great situation. I mean, he, he was eligible at ASU. He didn't really have any issues at ASU. I think he would have been fine at USC as well. I, I thought Vontaze perfect was the better player. I thought Vontaze perfect was the guy that was like – we saw him at a Nike camp and he was 6'2", 240, and he covered like a safety. He was locking down running backs in these drills. And these, you know, those running back linebacker one-on-ones, those coverage drills that we see in camps are totally bent towards the running backs. It's, it's I mean, they run these little chair routes and all these little okie-dokie routes that you'd never see in football. And it's really hard for a linebacker to be able to stay with a guy like that in space. He's, taking these little 5'8", little 5'9", slot receiver-looking running backs, and he is mowing them down in coverage and making these incredible these incredible plays down, like 30 down, yards downfield wheel route. You know, he's running with this running back and diving and breaking the ball up. So, you know, for me, it was like, perfect is a beast. Perfect is a – I mean, he's a gravitational point on defense. He played like that at ASU. Tail was, was a very good linebacker, played – you know, more of a sideline to sideline game and had a lot of those intangibles that you liked, but was not quite the athlete 
that uh, that Vontez Perfect was. But like I said, USC didn't get either of them. But I mean, if you think in hindsight of how that defense would have looked and that season would have looked for Pete Carroll when you get to that point where they're you know playing that year, and I can't remember what the record was, but they ended up going to that Almond Bowl. Um, you plug Manti Teo in there, Vontez Perfect, and Jarvis Jones and and Devon Kennard, and it's like. Really? I mean, that's a completely different looking defense. Yeah. They're probably not playing in San Francisco. They're probably playing at the very least the Rose Bowl. But that is one of those very like it's a very easily illustrative uh, moment in USC recruiting where you say that's where you whiffed at a position enough that it you saw the result on the football field. And that's sort of where we are at with USC and offensive linemen and offensive tackles specifically, and where they have to get back into this mode of getting four or five guys every year that are guys that can contribute and they're good football players because you cannot have one position where you just whiff that badly at. Linebacker is not even really quite as important in the grand scheme of things. You can sort of scheme out linebacker to some extent and just have some good college football players as long as you've got you know a good defensive lineman you've got a good secondary around them but offensive line obviously you can be uh, exploited a little more if you've just got some okay players up front uh, you're going to have your quarterback running around for his life well thank you for sharing your knowledge and your history of the Manti Teo saga uh, as I another, remember it, as as, as, as I remember, you I, remember, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sit here and say, you know, I have a monopoly on uh, exactly how everything went, but I mean, that was my perspective on that recruitment, and um, yeah, I think with Pete Carroll, I mean, Deshaun Jackson was a shock. I feel like Deshaun Jackson rivals it only because we didn't really get an early heads up on Deshaun Jackson, um, and Manti Teo, for whatever reason he did sort of keep some of those schools. It just seemed like there was, you know, I never, I think ever heard like he was for sure locked in with USC to the point where he had called USC. Well, you know, it's not true because I mean, I heard that he told USC like it was USC. And then all of a sudden they got that call like the next morning and it was like going to Notre Dame. And I was like, what? But I do remember Deshaun Jackson. He was one of the kids that called, there was two kids that called, Pete Carroll in the locker room after the Orange Bowl victory against Oklahoma. And I mean, at that point, it's like, holy cow, USC is just on the top of the world. They just annihilated Oklahoma. A lot of people thought was the favorite in that game. And Pete Carroll had said publicly, like, yeah, I just got a couple commitments over the phone. You know, crew class is going to be great. We're going to keep this thing rolling. And that turned out to be Kyle Moore and it turned out to be Deshaun Jackson. So at that point, everybody thought, man, Deshaun Jackson, he's, he's going to USC. And I think Deshaun Jackson told everybody he's going to USC. I don't remember if he actually told anybody he wasn't going to USC until he told everybody he was going to Cal. <laughs> so that was that was pretty shocking as well. Uh, Donovan Warren would be another one that, um, you know, kind of told us off record going to USC. And all of a sudden it was like last minute, right before he announced, it's like, oh, no, no, I'm going to Michigan now. And that was like a bit of a shocker. But certainly, yeah, Manti Taylor would be, would be arguably right at the top. Okay, well, if you're interested in watching that Netflix documentary, I recommend giving it a giving it a watch. It's pretty interesting. There's some uh, cool stuff in there. I think it's shot really well. Um, again, I have to finish it still, but I think it's a good watch. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. Now, Gerard, we have reached the conclusion of our main part of our show. Time to get into some listener questions. We got a, a good chunk of questions here submitted. 
Again, as always, if you're interested in asking us a question where we will answer it on the show, you can email us email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. I don't know why I can never say email us. Uh, just make sure you put the composite in the subhead to let us know so it'll go to us. Put 10K per hurricane, composite two-star recruits, two-star recruits, the Latino guys, cilantro boys, whatever you want to put, just put it there so it'll get to us. That's podcast at uscfootball.com. Now, Gerard, it is almost midnight. So hurry up. You're going to turn into a pumpkin. Listen, we got to raise the energy levels, Chris. Come I, on. We'll look, the, we'll, I, I yeah. got it. Put the put the fours up. Put the fours up. I got it. I'm <laughs> no, going to hit this up. And then the I'm going to torch needs to be lit. Six, torch needs to be lit. And I'm going to give it all I got in this final listener question run. And then I'm going to collapse right after I hit the unrecord button. That's what that's what's going to happen. The but, unrecord button. That's that's the button that you look for. It's the unrecord button. <laughs> all right. All right. All right, smart ass. I would like to hit these with some with some tempo. Can we can we do two minute warning? Can we two minute warning it? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. First down, first stop one. the clock though. Remember first, that. Okay. Uh off to a bad start because oh, this is from Big Shot on Twitter. Uh I went to Losinger. I hope I said that right. And my rival school was Lawndale. Between those two schools, who was the most sought-after players that you or Gerard can recall? Many players of note at all. Gerard, that one feels like a you uh, for any historical historical from recruits from the past out of those two schools. I was going to go right out there and say, hey, man, Orlando Greenlow, we're looking at you. Buddy. <laughs> we can't wait to see you this year. We want to see what Orlando Greenlow, the, the, the 6'5 wide receiver, from Lawndale is all about uh, Losinger has had some good teams in the past. Um, I mean, am I, am I, am I forgetting? Tuli was that from Losinger, correct? Uh, Tuli was at Lawndale. Oh, he's at Lawndale. Okay. 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 Yeah. yeah. Cause they're right there. Um, I know there's been good players at Losinger and I'm blanking on these dudes. They used to run like a wing T for the longest time, but they had really good defensive players. But I mean, Lawndale, let's just go with Thule. Like that's, that's, yeah. you know, one of the, one of the top guys, maybe that's a little bit of hindsight we're using on that one because he was only a three star and wasn't necessarily like the biggest big time player. Um, I think you had Jordan uh, Wilmore was also yep. at, Jordan uh, Wilmore Lawndale, at Lawndale, who was, was a big time player for them, was committed to USC as a running back for a while. Um, now at Utah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, it's too late to be going through the uh, the the whole the Rolodex whole... in your brain. Oh, guys, I, I know I'm forgetting about guys at Losinger because Losinger has had a bunch of very good players. Although I could be kind of sort of mixing up Losinger a little bit with Dominguez because they were both pretty good around that same era. And um, you know, obviously Dominguez just uh, they're not producing those guys that they used to. They used to be one of the top producers of talent in Southern California, you know, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, I guess it's just one of those things like, you know, you kind of forget the old players to bring new players in. So yeah, I'm all, I'm all about Orlando Greenlow right now. I just, you know, I want to go there see Orlando. Go. I want to see, um, the, uh, the athleticism is he, this guy that, you know, is completely off the radar as a basketball player. And, you know, he's gotten some scholarship offers here. You know, he was the guy that we were talking about being like, you know, a whack player or something like that, but eh, he's kind of blown up in the last few months. So uh, those are the guys that I'm excited to always see, you know, those are the guys that I'm always interested to see maybe the late bloomers 
um, because you're going to have more of those in a place like California than you are some of those other states where they blow up high school football, you know, so much earlier. Uh, this next one comes from Tariq, who set the record last week with five questions submitted uh, for the podcast, but just Don't one. Encourage this... him. Don't encourage him, Chris. But just, oh, that's that's true. Uh, ESPN player rankings historically and currently have less credibility than the other recruiting services for numerous reasons. Many fans, regardless of geographic location, don't take them serious. Why are ESPN's rankings still taken into consideration with 24-7 composite scores? I think it's because they are, while people don't take them seriously or they have less credibility, they're still a major recruiting database that is out there and, and gives more data to the to the composite for, for those scores. I'll be totally upfront, I think, and I really don't have the end-all, be-all answer for this because I was not a part of the creation of the composite rankings, but you should have been 24 seven was just getting started. And certainly you had to battle rivals and scout at that point who are established networks. And so if you want people to uh, include you uh, credibility wise and think of you as an equal, you incorporate all those rankings, giving the nod to those already well-established networks, but then interject yourself as a part of that as well. And you can obviously sell uh, specifically for the casual fan. That's like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go to three different networks to figure out who's ranking who, where I'm just going to go to 24 seven because that's the composite rankings. It takes everybody's ranking into account. And so there was a lot more sighting of 24 seven sports, which, you know, was brand new and, and nobody really heard of uh, by making that move. So it was a, a bit of marketing, I think, some of it. And when you include ESPN in that, that, again, sort of extends that credibility for the casual fan, even though many of us have always felt like ESPN has not done a very good job evaluating nationally. They certainly haven't done a very good job evaluating uh, on the West Coast. So I think some of it had to do with that. It was a, it was an idea of like, hey, you know, how do we compete and get our name out there? Um, let's come up with something. And I think encompassing everybody's rankings and being sort of a one-stop place to shop to figure out for, you know, the newspaper beat guy is like, hey, you know, what do I go with? I don't know. There's three different rankings here. You know, do I go with rivals? That's what I'm subscribed to. What about Scout? Oh, no, I like those guys at Scout. Well, hey, just do the 24-7 thing and you get all three. I think that's a great explanation slash theory. I think you're probably right, though. Uh, we got a two-question question from D from Central Valley. So the first one is for you, Gerard, and the second one's for me. So we'll let you go first. Uh, GM, on the last podcast, you mentioned how important it was for USC recruiting that Foreman would not turn into a bust. But in the same token, wouldn't it be great for recruiting if Romello, zero sacks in his career, uh, Romello height that is turns into an eight to 10 sack player. Absolutely. It works both ways. It, it helps USC for sure. They're able to sell player development. If you're bringing in three-star guys and you're getting them drafted, that's absolutely a crucial part of it. Um, it works and hurts you. You know, it's sort of the risk with having a five-star guy and maybe he's blown up by everybody and you're just not hundred percent sure that he is that guy that all the recruiting publications say he is and you bring him in and he ends up being a bust. It's just going to be one of those things you got to recruit around, you know, and, and certainly it's not something that if it happens once in a blue moon, 
is the biggest issue because I think everybody understands that, hey, some guys just get overrated. Some guys get injured. Things happen. It's just more of the consistency of it happening. You don't want to have, you know, three or four guys that are five stars, top players at their position, different cycles, and none of them are getting drafted. And it becomes a bit of a sort of mounting snowpack of the avalanche that's going to end up hitting you, which is, you know, where USC ended up with a, you know, rank 77 class or something in 2019, 2020. So it does work both ways. It's a two-way street. What you want to do is you want to have both. You want to make sure that mm-hmm. your guys that are five stars get out, they get drafted. Maybe they're not first round draft picks. Maybe they're not second round draft picks, but you want to get them, you know, third round at least, maybe fourth round. You know, Marshall ended up being drafted after all of that, but I think he was looked at as a generational player. And it was one of those things where USC is also not playing well. And all the guys around him, you started to see diminishing returns on draft picks for USC. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that if they're able to get some guys and produce them that people weren't really expecting to be big-time players, that's 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 awesome. Uh, but you do have to make sure that these big-time guys that people – like I said you know, early on, we kind of talked about this a little bit. Caleb Bryant from Vicksburg, Mississippi says, you know, I, I kind of looked up to, to Corey Foreman. You know, he doesn't know anything about Corey Foreman. He's probably seen very little huddle film from Corey Foreman at Centennial. But he he watched him as a guy that sort of he looked like and thought, my game is sort of like him, uh, the little bit I've seen. And he's the number one recruit and everybody's talking about him. And that's what he sort of has in his head. And so it's one of those things where, you know, that guy is sort of emblematic of success and you want to be able that guy to have the same type of hype leaving USC as he came in with USC. Second question, as I mentioned for me, CT, despite the challenges you, you have done a great job reporting on the spring and the current practices. Thank you. Uh, he wrote that also thank you to you D for that, uh, kind, uh, uh, words of encouragement acknowledgement acknowledgement there it is thank you uh it looks like kyle ford has regained some of his speed and he looks quote-unquote yoked you guys think he would be an h-back option we've gotten this question a couple times in the last couple of weeks and i don't hate it i definitely think kyle has uh this ability to maybe play kind of that h-back role out of the backfield he is a really good blocker physical blocker and that position kind of lends itself to that obviously he's a wide receiver so he has good hands Obviously not as big as, you know, sort of, you know, a tight end, which is sort of the position that typically utilizes that in a, a Lincoln Riley's offense. But he is he is bigger, you know, kind of that borderline six foot two, really, really yoked, as he as uh, D pointed out. So I do kind of like it. I think there could be something there. But on the flip side of that, Ford has been injured for the last several weeks and you need to be available to get on the field. So we're going to have to wait until he's back healthy and back practicing. Let's just Uh, point out that Kyle Ford has pretty much always been yoked. (laughs) He's mm -hmm. always been a a bigger, stronger looking receiver. And to your point of being healthy, that H back position, uh, it doesn't suffer fools and it doesn't suffer fragility you need to be able to block and you're going to be Mm -hmm. in the maelstrom of the line of scrimmage, taking on linebackers. You might have to lead block. I that's, that's the biggest question is in terms of blocking and physicality and and durability. 
that's a position where you, you know, you usually see, yeah, like sort of the sawed off tight ends at that position. Um, OU is definitely used flat out fullbacks at that position. You know, yeah. guys, maybe, maybe they got a little more height than your traditional fullback, but guys that can actually run the ball, which I think is a dimension of that position, which you might also want as well. Um, potentially getting a handoff and, you know, a little sneaky something on a third and two where you get a guy in motion and everybody thinks it's just going to be a wham block and then the guy gets the ball and he's got enough strength to be able to just break a tackle and lean forward and boom, you got a first down. So I, I don't know. Yeah, for Kyle Ford, I don't think you'd really look at him that way. I think it's one of those things where um, you don't have a lot of size at wide receiver. You don't have a lot of mass there. It's really sort of Kyle Ford. Um, it's uh, – where Hudson and then, you know, you got Brendan Rice, you know, that's kind of the three guys that come to mind uh, in terms of the bigger body. So I don't necessarily know if you would want to be putting him at H back uh, when, um, you know, you, you, you could maybe make some other players out of the tight end position. You've got Ethan Ray there. Who's a bigger, a bigger guy that um, a lot of people thought, you know, maybe he ends up playing offensive line down the line. I think that H back position, certainly first and foremost, you got to block. Gerard, I need more tempo from you. Okay, let's go. Next one. <laughs> hey, Chris and Gerard, this is from Nick. Since the interior offensive line class is filling up, is Marcus Deal still a take on offense? No. I remember here. Next question. I, re- I remember hearing that SC wanted to play on the offensive line instead of D line, but the team is more desperate. Is in more desperate need of solid interior defensive linemen right now. Is Deal better suited for the offensive or defensive line at the next level? Is there any update on his recruitment? I appreciate all the effort you put into the site and on the podcast. Well, thank you, Nick. We updated that earlier, talking about defensive line. And USC originally on his unofficial visit, it was Josh Henson who was sort of talking to him. And on his official visit during June, uh, he had a much better talk and relationship building uh, experience with Sean Nua and it was made uh, more uh, pr- pronounced that he was going to be recruited as a defensive lineman. He wants to play defensive line. So um, that's where USC is looking him at. Well, there we go. We have another question from Jagger, a uh, question for the Cilantro boys. Name a recruit who you thought was the biggest long shot to end up at USC that actually ended up at USC. Um, probably Mike Morgan. That was a weird Mike one because Mike Morgan. Morgan had actually eliminated USC from his like top three. Is that a tight end? No, Mike Morgan was a linebacker at USC um, and played for Pete Carroll also with the Seattle Seahawks. And he was a four-star, high four-star guy. He was an undersized guy. He was like a 6'4", 205 coming out of high school. He was at Skyline High School. And, um, yeah, we just didn't really hear a whole lot about USC during the recruiting process. And then – you know, like a couple of weeks before he was going to announce, he put out a top three and it was like Texas A&M, uh, Florida State and maybe Oklahoma State. And I wasn't even paying attention to the announcement. He had it on Fox Sports Southwest. And I get a call from Jeff Tarpley, who runs the Texas A&M site. Uh, we were both at Rivals at that point. He goes, hey, man, Michael Morgan. I said, what about him? <laughs> he goes, You're like, who? You and asked him the same thing. Is that a tight end? I, 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 no, I mean, I knew who Michael Morgan was. I was like, what? He goes, yeah. I go, he goes, I know. I know. He just freaking announced for USC. He goes, listen, we get somebody down at the, the news station. Cause I mean, they were thinking maybe Texas A&M. So uh, we try to get like an interview with him, I think coming out of the studio and we ended up talking to his brother, but he never, I mean, he didn't do interviews at all. So that was another 
part of it that he really didn't talk a whole lot. So that's one that just off the top of my head, I mean, we didn't think even at the announcement, like USC was even in it. I mean, cause he basically didn't, he didn't put USC in it. So we had every reason to think that they'd been eliminated and uh, he popped for USC. So that was a scramble, you know, to, to, to try to get that story up. There you go. I think that's a great answer and I'm not gonna be able to top it. So, cause there's no one that really jumps out in my mind. So I think we're, we're just gonna have to accept that one hurricane. Uh, Bamp95 from the Peristyle sent me a DM with several several questions, a few questions. Uh, Gerard, are you ready for some his, his, uh, horrific Spanish? Some horrific Spanish? Uh, am I ready? Uh, as long as the pace is fast. Just like <laughs> you would speak it in Spanish. It would be spoken quickly. Uh, para Huracana. Donde está el restaurante de tacos en el área de Chino que está en un gasoloren, gasolinera? Gasolinera? Oh, oh Gasol- a gas station. That's what I assumed it was. Look, it wasn't that bad. I don't think I did a terrible job, but... It was... Okay. <laughs> the question is, where in Chino can I get tacos at a, at a gas station? Um, I guess I've talked about this before. Enlighten us. Enlighten I don't know this, yeah, specifically about uh, Chino. I know that um, uh, off the 60 freeway, there is a place at the 76 that is a, gosh, it used to be Umberto's. And I don't even know what the name of it is now, but I don't think it's the same. But it's in that 76 gas station. And they got great Mexican food there. So there you go. There Ooh. you go. Uh, recruiting question, same same pot of questions. With the Big Ten move, do you see Grinch focusing on getting some bigger defensive linemen instead of quick and smaller recruits? Do you think he changes or has an eagle like Harrell and stupidity of Helton? Both did not recognize and embrace change. It has shown that defense wins national championships and the Big Ten and SEC both have massive offensive and defensive linemen. I would say Lincoln Riley did kind of mention that uh, going to the Big Ten will kind of change the type of players that they recruit. So I could definitely see them kind of going for some more of those bigger uh, offensive defensive or defensive linemen. But I still think they will value sort of the quickness uh, for their players. Well, you saw what happened to Graham Harrell and you saw what happened to Clay Helton. So you either adapt or you die. Yes. Uh, or in this business, you get fired. And uh, certainly that's why, you know, Dejon Benton is an interesting selection uh, as a potential starter for USC. And the move to go in that direction for quickness uh, rather than size. I mean, you've got Earl Barquette there, who somebody, again, I was very high on coming out of TCU as a quick mobile type of defender. And he's a guy that's, you know, in that 280 range as well. So, They've definitely gone that way. And, you know, on one hand, you say, and I think the the point is valid and it's uh, historically correct in terms of what wins championships, Um, big guys up front and having uh, defenses and offenses uh, with with just size. You know, Um, they don't call them the big boys for nothing. But you also have to sort of teach and embrace the, the philosophy you believe in, 
you know, and if you're not really believing in it, then it's kind of hard to try to switch it up because we've seen that as well. We've seen, you know, Clay Helton um, try to run Steve Sarkeesian and Clay uh, or Lane Kiffin's offense, you know, the, the Sarkiffin offense. And that's not neither here nor there. You know, it's, it's sort of like this uh, amalgamation of two different offenses and neither of them are really Clay Helton's. So you have to embrace what you believe in and what you know in, what you're passionate about. And so in that sense, you say, well, you know, Alex Grinch really believes that stunting mobile defensive linemen can overcome um, just a big, angry front that's going to run the ball right up the middle down your throat. Um, and you can be disruptive and you can do what they did at Washington State. Then you you got to you got to go all in on that. You know, you, you can't. Just say, well, we're going to become somebody else. Um, you're going to have to go get another defensive coordinator if you want to get somebody else that's going to go and use uh, bigger uh, one-shade type tackles and and guys that, um, you know, it's more about the size and it's more about, uh, I guess you could say, space eaters up front than guys that are mobile that are disruptive. And his final question, never say never. It will be hard to flip Francis and Simmons and USC should stay on them. But has USC tried to recruit Samson Okun Lola. He has interest in Oregon, so distance doesn't seem to be a factor. Samson being the big, uh, I believe he's like the number two rated uh, offensive tackle out of uh, Massachusetts, which you don't get see a lot of uh, high end talent coming out of Massachusetts, but he is a top offensive tackle prospect in the 2023 class. I believe USC did the pr- previous staff offered Samson uh, initially when he was like really like maybe like a newly minted four star. Now he's a five star prospect. I actually talked to him right after that offer. And yeah, it doesn't seem like USC, this Lincoln Riley staff really played for, you know, recruiting him that hard, you know, but if USC starts winning games, maybe, but I don't, I think he's so far into his process of his recruitment that I think it's kind of hard to kind of break into that. Cause seems like Alabama's kind of like the team to beat there. So I think it's too, too kind of, that one feels like too kind of late to kind of get really involved in. Yeah. Alabama's uh, stacking it up pretty good though. I mean, they've got Miles McVeigh. Um, they've got Elias Alanin. They've yeah. got um, another kid locally Formby. So they're, they're pretty stacked. And, and, you know, this is, again, this, this is how you maintain year in and year out being a national championship contender. You know, you just continue to recruit these positions. You stack these positions. USC fans are still in this PTSD era of Clay Helton where it's like, well, it's okay. We got we got a player last year at that position, so he's he's going to scare away all the other players for the next two classes. Like, that's baloney. That's not how you recruit. That's not how you recruit at high level. You stack these positions, man. You, you know, in the next year, you take two or three running backs. You guess what? You're going to go take two more running backs the next year because you're always looking forward to these guys leaving early the NFL draft. And, you know, going back to the Manti tale, that era of linebacker for USC where, you know, you lose all those guys and you've got to bring in a bunch of guys and you've got to stack your depth chart. And it may be more difficult now because you've got the transfer portal and some of these guys are not going to wait around. But nevertheless, you still have to try to do it. But on the subject of Samson Okun Lola, we have not heard anything about him. I think he's down to like a top five or top six. USC's not in it. USC hasn't really been in the conversation for him, I mean, probably this whole year. 
So I don't know that they really even reached out or recruited him whatsoever. I mean, they've offered a scholarship to Zalant Hurd as well out of uh, Monroe, Louisiana. He's another high four-star guy, 6'5", 300 pounds. Um, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, a guy that uh, they tried to, to, to get a visit from or tried to, you know, revisit, but still not somebody that USC has been in the conversation for, probably ends up uh, local or in the SEC, and he'll, you know, end up uh, announcing um, before – you know, anything that USC does is, is going to change his recruitment. So I think with both those guys, it's like maybe, maybe you can win enough games where you start to turn heads and you can build enough momentum where, you know, that rocket ship that Lincoln Riley was talking about um, on that June 17th weekend, it starts to, 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 to rumble enough and, and make enough of, of a, of a sound that nobody can ignore it. And then once you get those eyeballs, then potentially, you know, those guys start to take it a little more seriously because they get on campus. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's tough. You know, I mean, it seems like you're probably going to have to try to revisit the well of Francis Mamagoa or Lucas Simmons. Um, some of those guys that you already have a built-in relationship and you're hoping that one of those schools falters and it gets you uh, your foot in the door and you're able to re-recruit them. And our final question of the night episode comes from 4th and West SC on the P on the P. Hey, GM and 10 K. What are some of the greatest raw athletes that you saw in person while covering recruiting? Also, where would Nicholas Harbor fit on that list? Keep up the great work. You too. Unfortunately, I have not seen Harbor in person, so I cannot put him on that list yet. I hope to maybe, you know, catch him in person, but he's definitely a freak of nature and i hope to be able to see him in person uh greatest raw athletes off the top of my head maybe for me gerard obviously has a greater uh uh rolodex of people in his head but uh devin williams was a really really outstanding athlete and he when he was on he was on but obviously his issue was kind of that consistency of staying on and being that dominant guy every snap and you know, drops and issues holding on to the balls and stuff like that. But Devin Williams was on. He was on. I mean, certainly Nick Harbour just on paper would be up there. I mean, there's absolutely no I'm, guys I'm, that are that are legitimately 6'5", 6'6", that are 235 pounds and run 10'2". That just on paper is extraordinary. Um, in terms of guys that have seen in person, because like Chris – uh, I've never seen him play football in person. I would say, you know, Marquise Lee was up there. Uh, I would say, you know, Patrick Johnson, a.k.a. Pat Peterson, was someone that just overall as a football player is one of the best football players I've ever seen in person uh, at a camp. You know, he could just do it all. Uh, he ended up going to LSU and then uh, playing a bunch of years as a all-pro uh, for the Cardinals. Um, Tyron Smith was another one who's a tremendous athlete, you know, was a guy that, uh, you know, we all knew was going to play offensive tackle, but was 260, 265 coming out of high school. So he looked more like, you know, some of these defensive ends, but this was a guy that had probably, you know, like 3% body fat. So he was absolutely a rip 265 pounds, which is not something that you see very often. Um, but uh, yeah, there was just a, a lot of very good raw athletes and some of them ended up being very good football players as well. Um, 
in terms oh. of guys that were just like great athletes that didn't turn out to be great football players. Oh man. I'm not saying that, but also Adoree Jackson was obviously a freaky athlete. Yes, very much so. Adoree Jackson was was way up there. Um, I'm just trying to think of anybody who was a great athlete, but just never necessarily put it together on the football field. Um, Devin Williams. Well, yeah, Devin Williams, uh, certainly. Um, I don't know if he would be that high up for me. Um, Torn Harris was was pretty up there. Um, we talked about, I think on this podcast, going down and seeing the Rising Stars camp where you had Torn Harris, who gets the scholarship offer after he wins like a 4-3-8 um, on the track. But you had Troy Hill, who just looked like so much better of a defensive back in, in, in cone drills and everything. And we're like, man, he – He's playing so well, and he just didn't have the athleticism necessarily. But Kai, I think he's still playing in the NFL today. Um, so you know, there, there, there's maybe been a few of those guys that have been sort of um, those sort of raw athletes, but uh, kind of fell through. There's there's another guy whose name I can see his face, and his name is escaping me. He was from Arizona. He played defensive tackle for USC. He played a year, and then he dropped out of USC. And actually never, I think, played football again. And he played tight end and he played defensive end in high school. And he was a tremendous athlete. And he played a lot of tight end in seven on seven, even though he was like 6'6", 290 pounds. Can you remember who that was? I'm blanking on is this. His a name. Recent, is this a recent person? This is somewhat recent. This is, um, this is, who was it? Was it Steve Sarkeesian or was it Clay Helton? Um, this is interesting. Uh, now, now I'm... Now I'm invested in figuring out. Who this Let person. me look at 2018. Um, I the commit class. And I just want to point out that we are past midnight, Gerard. Oh no, Chris is going to turn into. A I'm player. going to melt, but I need to know who this player is. I need you to to figure this out. Let's take a so step of the dark and go for. I, I feel like I have an idea of who you're talking about, but I and I don't have the name as well, but. Even if I had the name, I wouldn't be confident because I feel like uh, – did this person end up at like UNL? Olawale Betiku. Olawale Betiku would be up there. That's a guy okay. that in terms of raw – I mean this is good to be able to go back into the annals of um, of USC recruiting classes uh, to see guys that were you know great uh, athletes but not necessarily um, – Big time uh, football players, you know, didn't necessarily pan out uh, from a football standpoint. Um, let's see, I'm looking. Porter Gustin was 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 one of those top athletes. Now he turned out to be uh, one of the better players that USC had, um, but certainly uh, in terms of raw athleticism, Noah Jefferson. That's who I'm thinking about. That okay, I was actually from thinking- Las Vegas, not from Arizona, so I screwed up on that. But Noah Jefferson was a a, a spectacular athlete and a guy that looked like he was going to be a big time player for USC, but, you know, had some personal issues and um, dropped out of USC. And it looked like maybe he was going to enroll at Arizona. Maybe he even did enroll at U- uh, Arizona. I can't remember, I think but he enrolled at UNLV, UNLV Ed, but never just never was able to kind of put it together. Um, but uh, we were thinking about Davis, the same person. We were thinking about the same person. Gerard. Yeah. Yeah. Dominic Davis was, was a, a spectacular athlete, a guy that was a, a track champion, um, was committed to Washington State and USC was able to nab him away. So there's just yeah, plenty of guys that uh, come to mind. You you really got to look over these commit lists. There's been so many players you know that have come and gone over the years. Does 
Drake London count? Drake London, oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, when you say raw athlete, it, it sort of implies not necessarily the best football player. You so know? maybe like, Orlando Greenlow. <laughs> well, we don't know. We got to go check out Orlando. We got to check out the pride of Lawndale. Uh, circle circle back to Greenlow. It all comes back to Greenlow is what we're saying. I'm excited to go check him out at some point this season. Right, but when I think raw athlete, I'm thinking of someone who is obviously very athletic, but not necessarily like the best football player. Well, they could come over from other sports, and obviously with Nick Harbor, you know, track is a big is a big right. player for him there. I mean, Roderick Pleasant is another tremendous raw athlete mm-hmm, because of mm-hmm. what he could do. Now, I would say Roderick is more accomplished in football at this point than Nick Harbor is, and and. There may be even less questions about him in terms of position and what have you. So that makes it a little easier. But, I mean, Nick Harbour is still – I think he's a five, so I think he's still the number one ranked – I think he is now the number one ranked athlete in the nation. Yes, yes, it was yes. Makai Lemon, and now it's Nick Harbour. But I know there's questions still about, okay, where does he play? If you're going to put him on offense, can he catch the ball? Is he actually a natural receiver? You can just assume, well, hey, man, he can run 10-2. He's just going to run by anybody anybody that you put him against right he's going to either just catch the ball over the guy's head or he's just going to run past them but the, the thing is he's got to catch the ball like you can be open and not be able to catch the ball it's a problem so you know that's going to be the biggest question i mean for me watching him this season is you know hopefully as a quarterback to get the ball out of his hands and can get the ball into his hands and seeing how natural of a path sketcher he is because certainly i mean lord almighty if he can catch the ball at 6'5", it's over. 240, it's over. At 10-2, what do you do with that guy? <laughs> what do you you can't do anything with that? That's 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 impossible. That's a whole nother level of football player. That is football evolution leveling up right there. If he can actually catch the ball decently, um, I just don't know. You have to put a smaller guy on him. You have to try to jam him and hope he just doesn't have the technique to get off the line. I guess <laughs> that that's the only thing you could do. And pray. And pray. And pray. And pray. And with that, that's going to wrap up the first edition of the Late Night Composite Two-Star Recruits, a historical uh, podcast at that. Again, I just want to thank our official Composite Two-Star Recruits uh, sponsor, Meredith Schlosser, and her team. You can follow her at, at Meredith Real Estate. Again, go to her website, MeredithSchlosser.com. Sponsored a two-day podcast. This is a two-day podcast. Oh, that's 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 right. It started in uh, Wednesday and ended in Thursday. So a historical one at that. And probably won't go up until Friday. (laughs) No, it'll go up today if you're listening to this. Uh, Again, thank you to our sponsor, Meredith. Uh, That is Gerard. I am tired. Uh, And this has been the Composite Two Star Recruits. And we will catch you next time. That leopard sucks. CBS Friday, TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. Lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You speak. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.